1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I'm very happy to welcome back Dr. Ali Atai from Zaytuna College in California. Assalamu alaikum, sir. Wa alaikum, assalam, brother Paul. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Very, very good to have you back on the channel. Good to be back on Blogging Theology,
0: best uh, podcast on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> you have
1: no idea how much money I have to pay to you. You get to say that every time. But, um, for those who don't know, Dr. Ali Atai is a scholar of biblical hermeneutics specializing in sacred languages, comparative theology, and comparative literature at Zaytuna College. Today he will be giving a, a presentation uh, titled Defending the Qur'an, the Qur'an and the Apocryphal Gospels, inshallah. This will be uh, part two of the Qur'an series we started last year with the preservation of the Qur'an. Today, Dr. Ali Attai will answer the question, Did the prophet plagiarize certain apocryphal Christian writings that contain heretical Christological views? And there will be um, an examination of what the Christian canon and apocryphal are, um, who determined them, and when. So over to you, sir. Thank you so much. All right. Yes. So as
0: you said, Paul, this is uh, part two. Uh, Of two of our Quran series, but section one of two Part one as You said was on the preservation of the Quran. We did that about a year ago or so Uh, Today we start uh, part two, uh, but we'll only cover section one So section one is called defending the Quran as you said the Quran and the apocryphal Gospels So in section two our next uh, podcast inshallah We'll examine the Quran's engagement with Jewish texts and traditions. So like the Tanakh, the Talmud, the Midrash, um, as well as other traditions, like Dhul Qarnayn, things like that, etc. Um, so, yeah, so here is the uh, the Christian polemicist and modern atheist claim, simply put, the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, they don't say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but I'll say it, uh, plagiarized certain apocryphal Christian writings that contain heretical Christological views when he composed the Quran, uh, which he claimed was a revelation from God. Uh, so let's take a small step back, first of all, broadly speaking, what is the Qur'an actually doing with the Christian tradition? Uh, well, as I said in the last podcast, the Qur'an uh, tells us what it's doing. The Qur'an is transparent. Um, we don't have to, to guess. The Qur'an acknowledges explicitly that it is confirming, rejecting, and refining major aspects of the Christian tradition. Uh, the Qur'an refers it to refers to itself as a muhaymin. And Paul, you asked me uh, about this term way back, I think during our first uh, podcast. Muhaymin is also one of the names of God in the Quran, yeah. al-muhaymin. Muhaymin means um, an overseer, a supervisor or master, uh, a, a final authority, right? So the Quran says, we revealed the scripture to you, O Muhammad, وسلم, in truth, as a confirmer uh, of what came before it from the previous scriptures and as a supreme authority over them. Uh, so, uh, judge between them by what God has revealed. And, and there are many other uh, verses that explain what the Quran is doing with Jewish and Christian texts. So, there is confirmation, there's correction, and there's rejection. Of Christian texts and traditions. Uh, for example, after telling us about Jesus, peace be upon him, after giving us uh, his status, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Isa ibn Maryam, such was Jesus, the son of Mary. Al-haqi ladhi fihi the aforementioned is the statement of truth about which they, Jews and Christians, we can add atheists, are disputing. In other words, the aforementioned, the aforementioned is who Jesus really is. Uh, a, a prophet of God, a servant of God, uh, etc. So the Qur'an engages in critical rewritings mm. of the Judeo-Christian tradition, specifically in this case, a Christological revision mm. or correction of incarnationalist uh, Christianity. In another verse, uh, the Qur'an says, ولا Thalatha," <laughs> right? ثَلَاثًا Don't say three. You know, So here, the Qur'an is uh, broad in its condemnation. So don't say three, fill in the blank three persons father son holy spirit like the the catholics and the later eastern orthodox and protestants father son mother like the coloridians uh don't say three beings like many influential pre-islamic christian theologians like john Philoponus, and many others uh, of course modern mormons are tritheistic uh, the godhead for them consists of three distinct deities don't say three modes, like the modalists, the patripassianists. Don't say three, right? So, uh, of course, um, critical scholars eventually complied with the Quran, and <laughs> the, the Johannine Coma, right? <clears throat> yeah, uh, from the critical Greek text in 1952, Revised Standard Version, First John five seven. That's the that's the only verse, as you know, in the in the New Testament that described God as three. Uh, but you know, better late than never, uh, I guess. Um, so this is this is a tweet from Dr. Khalil Andani that I wanted to share. And Paul, you actually shared it with this with me a while back. I thought it was a brilliant uh, response on his part. I, I hope he doesn't mind. Um, now, obviously, I don't agree with Dr. Andani on many issues, uh, but I just love his response here to a um, a Christian mm. critic mm. of the Quran who accuses the author of the Quran of basically doing a copy and paste job. Mm. Various. Christian texts and traditions, both canonical and apocryphal, so I'll just read this. He said, I concluded the opposite creative and coherent incorporation of biblical and post-biblical material into an original and critical theological narrative indicates its author has a very deep and sophisticated knowledge of biblical slash late antique religion and sources akin to a library. And and I have a hunch that John right, the famous Orientalist at Soaz, I think he also noticed that it was basically impossible for one unlettered man in the Arabian Peninsula to produce the text of the Quran in the seventh century. He proposed that there must have been, uh, a don't know, a council of some sort of different editors in Iraq during the Abbasid Caliphate in the eighth century that basically stitched the Quran together using various different writings, kind of like what the redactor did with the Pentateuch, according to Wellhausen, mm-hmm. according to the
1: documentary hypothesis. Okay. for me, sorry to interrupt your your marvelous flow, but I mean that this point is such a good one. I think that mm-hmm. um, it, it is literally, in my view, uh, for what it's worth, impossible for a, a man to have produced the Quran. It, it has such nuance, such sophistication uh, uh, in its engagement with the biblical material. Um, in, in a way that we're only beginning to appreciate, it makes no sense historically at all to attribute this to a man in seventh century Arabia. Uh, yeah. It 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 beggars belief that it's possible. It's not possible, and I think the right. only thing stopping certain scholars from acknowledging that is, is simply, well, other reasons, uh, shall we say? But not the the technical <laughs> point is well made, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what—that's the conclusion Wansborough came to. But then, of course, with the recent discoveries of seventh-century Quran manuscripts that we talked about last time, where yeah. the entire Quran is attested many times over, yeah. Wansborough was th- definitively falsified after that yeah. point. Um, so, so here's a question: uh, hmm. How is this different than literary mimesis? In other words, uh, how, how is what the Quran is doing? uh to christian texts and traditions different than literary mimesis so just as a reminder during our last podcast about the crucifixion we said that the gospel writers such as mark were highly hellenized highly educated greek novelists and biographers and they wrote according to a well-known flexible genre of greco-roman literature where textual mimesis was standard in other words quite often the gospel writers borrowed Jewish and Greek stories about other people, like Joseph or Odysseus or Dionysus, they tweaked these stories a bit, then replaced the protagonist with Jesus or Paul in some cases. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM
1: for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Um, so that is very different than what the Qur'an is doing. The Qur'an says explicitly, Inna haq. These are the true accounts. The Qur'an isn't replacing people. It's correcting narratives. Right. For example, the Quran is not saying, you know, Jesus, peace be upon him, never healed the blind and lepers. That was the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. No, what the Quran is saying is that Jesus never claimed to be divine. Right. Now, to be fair, there are three instances where critical historians uh, do, in fact, contend that both the Bible and Quran in their presentation of specific events uh, replace antecedent figures with new protagonists. Uh, These involve events in the lives of the prophets Noah, Moses, and Jesus. So I'm only going to look at the last one today, the miraculous birth of Jesus, peace be upon him. The former two we'll look uh, at probably next time, definitely next time, inshallah, in section two of this course, along with some alleged historical errors in the Quran that are repeated ad nauseum by critics uh, of the Quran. Uh, But here's another question. What's the difference between a critical rewriting and plagiarism? So in the Qur'an, we have an Exodus narrative, right? The protagonist is Moses. Did the author of the Qur'an plagiarize this story from the Torah, from Exodus? The answer is no. According to many critical scholars of the Qur'an, like Angelica Newworth, right, the Corpus Quranicum Project, and I agree uh, with this, the author of the Qur'an already assumes that you know the received biblical tradition, okay? Mm, the Qur'an does not give us. Uh, The Flood or Exodus, thinking that none of its audience knows these stories. The Qur'an assumes what some scholars refer to as the full-knowing reader. So this is not plagiarism. This is called a critical rewriting. And by the way, there is not a single verse in the Qur'an that is identical to a verse uh, in the Bible. The Qur'an is restating relevant aspects of these stories in its own words, along with an unsurpassable eloquence. While also revising these stories for the sake of correction, and in order to draw out various Ebar, which are like sort of instructive and transhistorical lessons from the narrative. So I'll give you a quick example of a Quranic critical rewriting. So when Mary, peace be upon her, asks the angel how she can possibly have a son. Uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Quran give us two very different answers. Uh, this is not because, you know, the author of the Qur'an just couldn't remember the right answer, right? Oh, what did Luke say? Uh, <laughs> something up, right? No, this this difference is deliberate and instructive. The Qur'an purports to give us the true answer of, of the angel to Mary's question. And, and we'll see that the angel's answer in the Qur'an is much more contextually coherent than what Luke tells us. So more on the virgin birth uh, later, inshallah. So plagiarism, with all due respect, okay, is most likely what Joseph Smith did with the King James version of the Bible. So there are numerous quotes from Isaiah in the Book of Mormon uh, that are identical to the 1769 King James Version. This is just a fact. Now Mormons believe that Joseph dictated the Book of Mormon by putting a stone into his hat and then burying his face uh, into his hat. So in in the darkness of his hat, magical seer stone, uh, as they refer to it, would reveal the translation of the golden plates in English. Uh, The golden plates were written in a language called Reformed Egyptian, according to Smith, by two Nephite prophet historians named Mormon and his son Moroni, around 400 of the common era, again, according to Smith. So apparently, it's just a big coincidence that dozens of times, dozens of times, Smith's translation of Isaiah while peering into his hat was verbatim identical to the translation of Isaiah in the 1769 King James Version. So this fact for me raises serious doubts about Joseph's claim of prophecy. Uh, Plagiarism, with all due respect, is what Matthew and Luke did with respect to Mark and Q. Okay, Matthew and Luke copied extensively from Mark and Q verbatim, and both Matthew and Luke did not expect that their Gospels would be read alongside Mark, their main source, thus exposing their plagiarism, while the Quran expects you to know how it is revising the biblical stories. You know, if Matthew was a college student in 2023, he would be expelled. Right? <laughs> um, I mean, maybe, maybe this type of copying was accepted in the ancient Greco-Roman world. I doubt it. Uh, But even if it were, even if this was the case, it's still plagiarism. Now, sometimes Matthew does revise Mark, uh, but this doesn't help the confessional Christian who believes that everything in these four Gospels is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Matthew revised Mark because he disagreed with Mark. Mm. In other words, it it certainly seems like Matthew uh, did not think that Mark's Gospel was inspired by God, at least not all of it. Matthew was confirming, rejecting, and refining, just like the Quran is confirming, rejecting, and refining. Although Matthew was also plagiarizing at times, unlike the Quran, right? So so just as the Quran revises the four Gospels uh, in a manner to establish its own Christological voice, Matthew and Luke revised Mark to establish their own Christological voices. The problem, however, is that Christians believe that it's all canon. So that's a problem, right? Now, in a previous podcast, uh, we spoke about the preservation of the Qur'an, right? How the Qur'an came together, as it were, starting with the seven recitational variations, the companion codices, the Uthmanic Codex Committee, the 10 authorized reading traditions, the manuscript evidence, et cetera, et cetera. Now, over the past year or so, um, I've received multiple requests to do something similar with the New Testament. How did the New Testament come together? And it just so happens that today's topic the quran and the apocryphal gospels uh is directly related to the history of the new testament canon so we can kill two birds with one stone okay so yeah. so this is not me taking pot shots at christianity right the history of the new testament canon is directly related to our topic this is something we have to cover so uh <coughs> Um, So here are some uh, crucial questions that we must at least attempt to answer uh, before we can talk about the Qur'an's engagement with apocryphal Christian text. What is the Christian canon? Who determined it and how? When was it determined? What is the Christian apocrypha? Who determined it and how? Um, Is the author of the Qur'an beholden to the judgments of the Catholic Church? So uh, let's start with a seemingly simple question. What is a Christian? Now, if I were to ask a Protestant or a Catholic in 2023, he might say that a Christian is someone who believes in the New Testament as being the inspired word of God. You know, that's that's not a sufficient condition of Christian faith, you would say, but it's a good start. It's not sufficient because a Trinitarian would argue that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons also affirm that the New Testament is the word of God, yet they are not Christians because their theology is heretical, at least from the perspective of a Trinitarian. But even with this said i think they would say that a necessary condition of becoming a christian is belief in the new testament excuse me new testament canon of scripture Uh, and here it is okay so here are the books of the new testament canon and their authors according to the christian faith tradition so matthew wrote matthew mark wrote mark luke wrote luke etc now, sometimes the book itself is named after its author but most times not so acts was written by luke romans by paul <coughs> etc so these are the traditional attributions okay as you can see all books are considered apostolic and i'll def- i'll define this term a bit later uh, inshallah okay now here are the books of the new testament canon and their authorship according to the general consensus of critical scholars. So only 7 out of 27, barely 25%, are correctly attributed to their authors. The remaining books are either pseudepigraphal, which literally means false writings, that is to say forgeries, or pseudonymous, that is to say anonymous, but later attributed to an early authority. So look at the difference here. If we just toggle back and forth, it's right. Uh, interesting. According to the general consensus of critical scholars, none of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by the three pillars, James, Peter, or John. I mean, Paul calls them the so-called pillars. I mean, Paul obviously had major issues with them. The genuine Pauline corpus was written by a self-proclaimed apostle of Jesus. Okay, everyone agrees that Paul never met Jesus of Nazareth, and I would argue that there are good reasons to doubt whether Paul was ever commissioned by James. Uh, to teach the gospel. So, I recommend viewers to watch our podcast that we did on Paul versus James for more information. Uh, so, indeed, look at the difference, right? It, it's a big difference. So, as, as one of my teachers said in a short rhymed couplet, he said, it's all Paul and Paul is all. Uh, all right, moving on here. So, so here's a fact uh, that may come as shocking, The present 27 book New Testament was not officially and universally universally declared a closed canon until the 16th century. Okay, so this was after and in response to the Protestant Reformation. So that was a thousand years after the life of the Prophet Muhammad A a thousand years. In the 16th century, the Latin Vulgate of Jerome was declared absolutely and definitively authentic by the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was the 19th ecumenical council of the Roman Catholic Church. Some of the Protestant leaders, like uh, Martin Luther, were talking about forming a canon within a canon. So the Catholic Church responded by calling for this council. Okay. Ultimately, the Protestants adopted the New Testament canon of the Roman Catholic Church. You know, it's very interesting uh, and a bit ironic if you ask Protestants at random about the Pope, uh, of the Catholic Church, many of them will say highly derogatory things, uh, even to the point of, of calling the Catholic Church uh, the Whore of Babylon and the, the Pope is the Antichrist. And it's crazy. I've heard this many, many times personally. Uh, and yet it was the Roman Catholic Church that determined the New Testament canon that all Protestants read and revere as the Word of God. Uh, so let me say it another way. Most anti-Muslim polemicists Right, are not Catholic, but but some of them are, but most are not. And many of these polemicists vehemently condemn the Catholic Church. So not only are they anti-Muslim, uh, they're anti-Catholic, yet if you ask a non-Catholic uh, Christian, why are there 27 books in the New Testament? Uh, they'll be forced to admit, if, if they're honest, because of the Catholic Church. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, now, the first Christian in history uh, to suggest uh, that is uh, recommend, that Christians only read our present 27-book canon was Athanasius, okay, the Bishop of Alexandria in 367 of the Common Era. Uh, so, so let me be clear here, Athanasius was not the very first Christian to propose a canon. As far as we know, that was Marcion of Sinope, who died in 160 <clears throat> Common Era, who only proposed 11 books, right? So some version of Luke and then 10 Pauline epistles, including a Pauline epistle called um, uh, Laoducian's. Marcion's list is apparently not extant. Um, The oldest extant New Testament canon list is called the Moratorian Canon, which is probably mid-second century. The author or authors reject Hebrews, James, first and second Peter, and third John. Uh, They accepted the wisdom of Solomon, and the Apocalypse of Peter, so the moratorium canon was very different than what Athanasius would later suggest. Athanasius in the fourth century was the first to propose our present 27 books, Matthew to Revelation, 20 of which, as we saw, were either forged or or falsely attributed to their authors by ecclesiastical uh, authorities. So Athanasius said, in these alone, the teaching of godliness is proclaimed. Uh, so that's one man's opinion. Athanasius was also famous, or maybe we should say infamous, for his support of Hamausian Christology uh, that won the day at the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE. So that was the first ecumenical church council. In other words, he championed the belief that the Son of God was literally the same being uh, as the Father. Right. So Homoousios means same essence. So this is same essence Christology. The Father and the Son are ontologically equal. In fact, they're one and the same being. So not quite yet the Trinity, but we're getting there. Now, now contrary to popular perception, the Council of Nicaea uh, had nothing to do with the New Testament canon. Okay, This is the claim of uh, Dan Brown. Um, his fictional book uh, kind of popularized this claim. Uh, you know, actually, Voltaire uh, made this claim in the 18th century. In his uh, Dictionnaire Philosophique, right, he said that the council, uh, the council stacked, uh, you know, these these books on on an altar, and the books that fell to the ground were rejected, right. So this is a legend. Nicaea did not touch the issue of the canon. Uh, Constantine did not touch the issue uh, of the canon. Uh, there were around thirty to forty gospels of Jesus written during the early Christian period, but Nicaea had nothing to do with them uh, whatsoever. Uh, now, in 393 CE, okay, about 30 years after Athanasius um, wrote his recommended reading list, a small council, um, a, a small local council called the Synod at Hippo was held in North Africa, which ratified Athanasius's choices, and none other than Augustine of Hippo pushed hard for its acceptance as well. Of course, Augustine was the author of the famous De Trinitate on the Trinity, so he's considered probably the greatest... Uh, theologian in the Latin tradition until Aquinas, but the Synod at Hippo was not an ecumenical council, right? It was not a universal council, so there was still major difference of opinion among Christians the world over with respect to the canon of scripture. Uh, The Synod at Hippo was in no way universally binding. The Council of Trent, held about 1,200 years later, was universally binding. Well, at least it was uh, supposed to be, So the point is, Athanasius did not settle the canon. This is another misconception about the New Testament canon. Neither Nicaea, nor Athanasius, nor Hippo settled the canon. Now, Bart Ehrman, who is currently actually contemplating a book on this very topic, because he gets so many questions about the canon, he actually wrote his doctoral dissertation uh, on someone called Didymus the Blind. So Didymus the Blind was a a theologian in Alexandria, where he taught for about 50 years. Uh, He died in like 398 of the common era. Um, And the canon of Didymus the blind was different than the canon of Athanasius. So he and Athanasius were living at the same time and in the same city, same time, same city, different canons, okay? Didymus is similar to uh, Arius in this regard. Like Arius and Athanasius were living at the same time, same city, but espoused vastly different Christologies, right? Uh, But back to Didymus. So Didymus included in his canon the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Epistle of Barnabas, and also said that Second Peter was a forgery. Mm. So Titus was right about that, but as it turned out, a lot more than 2 Peter uh, was forged. Now, there is a popular claim among Christian apologists that the New Testament canon was actually settled and agreed upon before Athanasius, in fact, in the second century. So this is what we often are told by Christian apologists, so forget about Athanasius or the Synod at Hippo. It happened in the second century. So this is absolutely false. This is demonstrably not true. Uh, this claim is even worse than Dan Brown's claim about Nicaea. And of course, Dan Brown's claim is fiction. In the second century, the early church fathers and heresiologists, like the authors of the Moratorian canon, uh, certainly had their preferences. Okay? And there was much debate, but nothing was settled. Okay, nothing, again, nothing was officially and universally uh, settled until about 500 years ago, 1,000 years after Islam, 1,000 years after Islam, until we get official canon and apocrypha. Okay, so for the early uh, proto-Orthodox authorities, in order for a particular book to be considered true and authentic, okay, it had to be basically three things. Some say four, but two of them can be collapsed into one. So apostolic, catholic, and orthodox. So what does apostolic mean? Apostolic means that it was written by an apostle of Jesus, either a direct disciple or disciple of a disciple, right? So it needed to be connected to one of Jesus's closest uh, followers. What does catholic mean? So catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic in this context, okay? It means, you know, general or popular, well-read by many Christians. And finally what does orthodox mean? Orthodox means in agreement with their theology, the theology of the proto-orthodox. In other words, in line with the Pauline Christianity that would have eventually crystallize as full-blown trinitarianism. Now, the majority of Christians in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, the majority of those who believed that Jesus was a messianic figure were proto-orthodox because because of Paul of Tarsus relentless and unauthorized uh, evangelizing in the Greco-Roman world. And of course, there was not universal agreement, even among the proto-orthodox, about which books were in and which books were out. As I said uh, earlier, uh, Didymus the Blind was proto-orthodox. Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, who was present at Nicaea with Athanasius, he disputed James and 2 Peter and, and Second and Third John and Jude and Revelation. And he accepted the shepherd of Hermas Uh, There there was another local council in 364 uh, of the common era called the Council of uh, Laodicea. This was in Turkey. This is before Hippo that completely rejected the book of Revelation. They thought it was a total forgery. Um, So Jesus saying on the Alpha and the Omega, that's apparently a total forgery, according to the bishops that were present at that local council in Turkey. But here's the weird thing about how the Proto-Orthodox authenticated their books, So generally, if they deemed a certain book to be orthodox, right, that is, in agreement with their theology, then it was declared apostolic. So the Gospel of Matthew agreed with their theology, and it was quite popular. Therefore, it must have been written by an apostle. So Mm -hmm. Matthew. Yes, Matthew. Um, Now, this is a bit tangential, but uh, I want to say a few things about Matthew's Gospel just to clarify something. Uh, Muslim apologists are quick to point out that the Mathian Jesus was a practicing rabbi who said that as long as heaven and earth endure, not a jot or a tittle shall pass by the law until all is fulfilled. Uh, he said that the disciples, uh, adherence to the law must be greater, uh, than even that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He said that he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How do these things agree with Paul's teaching? And the answer is they don't, right? They don't agree. Uh, there are indeed individual teachings of Jesus recorded in Matthew, the, uh, recorded by Matthew the Evangelist, that conflict with Paul. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23 is probably the best example when Jesus clearly condemns antinomian Christians or Christians who reject the Nomos, the Torah. So this begs a question why then did the proto-orthodox canonize this gospel? Good question. Yeah. Well, if you look at the gospel holistically, by gospel's end, it actually comes to agree with Paul. Okay, the gospel of Matthew ends up vindicating Paul. So -hmm. Christian apologists appeal to what's known as the continuity argument. Okay, that there is direct continuity between the Mythian Jesus and Paul, that before Mm -hmm. his death, Jesus was teaching one soteriology, one way of salvation, but then after his death, he was teaching another soteriology, through Paul, his chosen apostle. But this shift is actually announced at the Last Supper, when the Matthean Jesus establishes a new covenant or New Testament in his flesh and blood. This is not line. So Matthew presents Jesus as speaking out of both sides of his mouth. However, uh, I agree with with Ehrman here, who does not affirm continuity between Paul and the Matthean Jesus prior to the Last Supper scene. Uh, In other words, Paul and Jesus are actually irreconcilable. Uh, For example, in Matthew 19, Jesus defines salvation in very clear terms. Okay, he says he defines it as following the commandments, but if you want to be perfect, then sell what you own and give it to the poor, and you will be given treasures in heaven. Okay, Mm. so the essence of the gospel, uh, the key to salvation, according to Jesus, is obeying God's commandments and taking care of people, serving people who need help. This is not how Paul defines salvation. So this is how Ehrman puts it. Uh, If if the Jesus of Matthew is right, and salvation is through adherence to the commandments and giving charity, um, exactly what the Quran says about Jesus, I might add, if Jesus is right, then there is no need whatsoever for Jesus to die. If Jesus is right, there is no need whatsoever for him to die. Uh, so in my view, Paul believed a rumor that Jesus had died by crucifixion uh, and and then was seen after his supposed death. And I think Jesus was seen, but that was because he never died. Uh, but in Paul's mind, Jesus died as a divine a savior. So Paul reasoned that it must then be impossible to keep the law. Therefore, we need a human sacrifice. And... And that forgiveness is only achieved if blood is shed. So these are just, um, you know, just compounded mistakes that Paul made. This is partly why I don't believe Paul when he claimed to be a Pharisee. So here mm. on the slide, you know, can someone be put to death for someone else's sin? The answer is no, according to the Torah. Is it impossible to keep the law? No, according to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh is, is blood necessary for forgiveness? No. Look at Psalm 51. Look at 2 Chronicles. So, so essentially what Matthew wanted to do at the end of his gospel was try to reconcile Jesus' teachings with Paul. Okay, so Matthew at times recorded what likely seemed to be authentic teachings of Jesus. But Matthew was ultimately a Pauline Christian. So Matthew had to harmonize Jesus with Paul. Uh, therefore, for Matthew, the Last Supper is the seminal. <laughs> during which there is an essential switch in soteriology. But it doesn't work.
1: Uh, well, 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 one story. is why, for Matthew, Jesus bothers to go around for one, two, three years preaching the, the gospel, this detailed mm-hmm. teaching, simply to uh, render it null and void at the Last Supper. I mean, why did he He should just just it down straight onto the cross, perhaps. It would have been a slightly more efficient way of doing it.
0: Yeah, exactly. If again, if Jesus' very clear definition of salvation in Matthew nineteen is true, if he's telling us the truth here, then then there is no reason for him to die. And so Paul's entire theology collapses, it falls to the ground. So I want people to imagine this. Okay. So I, I want to demonstrate how Paul how different Paul and Jesus really were. Yeah. So imagine this. So Jesus, peace be upon him, as you said, was you know walking around Palestine uh, for one to three years teaching Jews that their salvation lies in adherence to the commandments and being charitable. Serve God, serve humanity, and God will save your soul. This is salvation. This is yeah. the gospel, Yeah, right? It's conceivable that thousands of Jews heard this teaching directly from Jesus in Galilee and Judea. Now, the majority of Jews um, did not live in Palestine at the time of Jesus. So let's imagine that in the year 32 or something, 100 Jews, specifically from Corinth, let's say, met rabbi jesus and his disciples in jerusalem during the pilgrimage uh, and, and they were told by jesus himself that if they wanted to attain salvation they needed to follow the commandments and give charity okay these jews then returned to corinth and transmitted what they had heard directly from jesus to other jews in corinth now fast forward 10 to 20 years one day an amateur philosopher and traveling tent maker named <laughs> Paul of tarsus shows up in Corinth, and tells the Corinthians, Jews and pagans, that Jesus died on a Roman cross as a human sacrifice, and that their salvation depended upon believing that Jesus was a divine Son of God, who vicariously atoned for their sins. Okay, now imagine that 50 of those uh, Corinthian Jews uh, who had met the historical Jesus and his disciples came out and debated Paul. I mean... (laughs) Can you imagine that someone should make a movie about that? They would have asked Paul, where did he get his teaching from? And Paul would have said that, you know, he had a vision of the resurrected Jesus and that Jesus himself revealed these things to him. His Jewish opponents who would have believed in visions and theophanies, that was part of their worldview. Mm -hmm. Right. They would have said, "Okay, but that's a little strange because we met Jesus in person and he said nothing like that. We met him in person. We knew him. Besides, everyone knows that James is now the leader of the movement in Jerusalem. Do you have a letter of authorization from James, something that proves that you've been authorized to preach the gospel? And Paul's response would have been, no, my vision of Jesus is all I need. James, Peter, and John, these so-called pillars mean nothing to me. Now, would those Jews be justified in rejecting Paul's gospel? Yes, they were absolutely right to reject him. Unfortunately, many pagans believed Paul because uh i think it's because they they knew very little about the historical jesus and their knowledge of judaism was very limited and they trusted paul's claims because he was probably very likely uh very charismatic but paul and jesus were preaching two different gospels okay now back to matthew does matthew identify himself in matthew the answer is no you know when the Mathean jesus commands matthew to follow him does the author say something like so i followed jesus no he writes in the third person so, today we know that the book of Matthew was not called Matthew until 180 of the Common Era by Irenaeus, okay, the heresy hunter extraordinaire. But here's where it gets even weirder. If a book was explicitly claimed by its author to be apostolic, but did not reflect proto orthodoxy, then the proto orthodox would not consider it apostolic, despite its explicit claim of being apostolic. For example, the Gospel of Peter. Right, the the author of the Gospel of Peter explicitly claims to be Peter, and it was widely read. It was a popular gospel. In fact, Serapion of Antioch um, initially accepted as authentic. He was proto-orthodox. Eventually, some of his colleagues convinced him to condemn it. So, so let me say it like this: So anonymous books, anonymous books that would eventually be canonized, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were included and deemed authentic. But books uh, that were written during the same general time frame, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, that explicitly claim apostolic authorship were excluded because one group of Christian theologians, the the pro-Pauline, proto-Orthodox, whose teachings were at odds with the historical Jesus, found the Christologies of those books problematic. So, for example, the Gospel of Mark, which is anonymous, was accepted because it agreed with proto-Orthodoxy. And due to this agreement, it was attributed by proto-Orthodox authorities to Mark, a student of Peter, but the gospel of Mark's teacher, Peter, the gospel of Peter himself, which is explicitly attributed to Peter by its very author, was excluded because its theology clashes with Pauline, that is to say, proto-Orthodox Christianity. So how does it clash? Well, just give one example, if in the gospel of Peter, Uh, Peter wrote that when Jesus was crucified, he was silent as if he felt no pain, right? So that's not good, right? As they say, his pain is our gain. Uh, So what happened? Was his soul removed from his body so that they were crucifying an empty shell of a body? Maybe Jesus was just being stoic. Uh, If you read the Gospel of Peter closely, Peter actually avoids saying that Jesus died. He avoids saying that Jesus experienced death. Uh, he said that Jesus was taken up. That's how he puts it. Maybe because Peter thought Jesus was God and that God can't really die. Of course, this makes no historical sense. The historical Peter most likely did not worship another man as God. Whatever the case may be, the gospel of Peter was eventually condemned. Um, but here's a question. Why, why was the gospel of Mark eventually attributed to Mark? right? The first gospel in the canon. Uh, did the New Testament character known as Mark actually write the Gospel of Mark? So who was Mark? Okay, so according to the book of Acts, Mark was the son of a certain Mary whose Jewish name was John. Um, he was a student of Peter. He was a traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas. The first Christian to mention that someone named Mark wrote anything about Jesus was Papias, who died around 130 of the, of the common era. He was the bishop of uh, Uh, Hierapolis. Uh, And he mentions this in his no longer extant five-volume exposition of the sayings of the Lord. So this was sometime during the first quarter of the second century, okay? We only know of this passage because it was uh, quoted by Eusebius of Caesarea in his famous ecclesiastical history, written around 325, something like that. So this is what Eusebius wrote, quoting Papias. He says, this also the presbyter said, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not in order whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard, and not to state any of them falsely. These things are related by Papias concerning Mark, but concerning Matthew he writes as follows. So then Matthew wrote the oracles in the Hebrew language and uh, and everyone interpreted them as he was able. So so the Christian position can be summed up in a nutshell as follows. The same Mark who is described in the book of Acts wrote the gospel that we now know as the gospel of Mark and that this is attested to by Papias in the early second century some 40 to 60 years after Mark was composed. In other words, the tradition that Mark wrote Mark did not begin with Irenaeus in 180 CE. It predates Irenaeus by at least 50 years. Mm. Now, unfortunately for the Christians who maintain this position, most historians do not believe that Papias was describing what came to be called the Gospel of Mark. The main reason is precisely because the Gospel of Mark does not match What Papias is describing as being Mark's writing. Mm -hmm. Papias was clearly describing a writing that was narratively disjointed, like a sayings gospel, like something like Q or Thomas, and yet also very comprehensive in its presentation of Jesus' sayings and deeds. The, The gospel of Mark is the very antithesis of this. I mean, Mark's narrative is chronologically ordered, yet also very concise. Right. In fact, it's the shortest of the canonical gospels by far, having only sixteen chapters. Historians feel the same way about what Papias said concerning Matthew's writing. That is, you know Papias uh, was most likely not describing what we know today to be the Gospel of Matthew because the Gospel of Matthew was most certainly written in Greek, not Hebrew, and does not contain, does not simply contain the you know oracles, i e. sayings of Jesus, but rather contains, a very long, well-structured narrative of Jesus's ministry and death. So yes, Irenaeus was the first to refer to Mark's gospel um, uh, as uh, Mark's gospel. But why did Irenaeus call it Mark? Why not call it the gospel of Peter or even Timothy or Barnabas? Why did he attribute proto-Mark to Mark, a little-known character in the New Testament, Uh, if he didn't need to. The Christian answer is that Irenaeus must have simply been relating an older tradition uh, that already attributed proto-Mark to Mark. He was simply reaffirming uh, that tradition. Historically, however, this seems unlikely. The simple answer is that Irenaeus knew that the figures Mark and Matthew, for that matter, had allegedly authored something due to a prevalent oral tradition that was articulated in writing it. One point by Papias around 120 to 130. But again, the writings of Mark and Matthew that Papias was describing in his exposition of the sayings was clearly different than what Irenaeus would eventually refer to as the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Matthew. Nonetheless, it was a stroke of genius on the part of Irenaeus. By calling proto-Mark Mark, he was able to establish for this gospel an apostolic chain of transmission, you know, from Jesus to Peter to Mark, on the authority of someone called the Presbyter. So where are the writings of Mark and Matthew that Papias was actually describing? Where are the writings of Mark and Matthew that Papias was actually describing? their are lost. Maybe Q is Papius's Mark. Papias was describing something that resembled Q, a, a, lo- a long uh, sayings gospel. Uh, God knows. I mean, the bottom line is, what we know today as being the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew was likely not what Papias was describing as being the writings of Mark and Matthew, right? It was Irenaeus who called the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, because he wanted to connect those Gospels to Papias before him, who described something called Mark and Matthew. Okay, um, a, a Christian apologist might say, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by two eyewitnesses to Jesus and two students of eyewitnesses, while the Gospels of Peter and Thomas and Mary and Philip, et cetera, et cetera, these were falsely attributed to their authors. So this argument doesn't quite work anymore. Almost all historians and critical scholars of the Gospels maintain that, in fact, all of these books are anonymous. So Peter did not write Peter any more than Matthew wrote Matthew. It's all apocrypha. Uh, That is to say, it's all of dubious origin. There is no strong isnad right or chain of transmission for any of these writings this this is just reality Um, does the quran we read today go back to the prophet muhammad peace be upon him yes if viewers haven't done so please watch the podcast on the preservation of the quran Uh, whether you agree with the content of the quran or not all of the reading traditions we read today can be traced back to the prophetic archetype but here's what i'll do you know just for argument's sake let's just for argument's sake uh, say that um, Athanasius settled the canon, okay? He didn't, but just for the sake of argument. Now, now certainly there were millions of Christians who lived and died before the fourth century, right? Before the so-called canonization of the New Testament. So what canon did they believe in? You know, whenever I, I make the uh, plausible historical claim that Jesus was not crucified, I'm told invariably by Christian apologists to just read the New Testament, right? Read the four gospels, read Paul. Jesus was crucified. Right? But what about the authors of uh, the, the Acts of John, or the so-called Second Treatise of Seth, or the Gospel of Thomas, or the author or authors of Q? So these are Christian writings that either ignore the crucifixion altogether or outright deny the crucifixion. Why didn't their authors just read the New Testament? Of course, the answer is there was no New Testament. These books, like the Acts of John, these predate the canon. Or they'll say, oh, those books are anonymous. So are the gospels. Those books are late. Well, Q likely predated Paul and did not contain a passion narrative. They'll say the Acts of John is late. Well, the gospel of John is also late, probably early second century. Acts is most likely second century. Second Peter is probably 120, 130, something like that. Some historians actually date Thomas's gospel to sometime before the synoptic gospels. Uh, because of its method of presenting the sayings of Jesus. Some historians even call it the fifth gospel. But forget about the second, third, or fourth centuries. Christianity was extremely diverse even in Paul's day. There was a plurality of Christianity in Paul's day, even in the 50s. According to 1 Corinthians, there was major heiress, he calls it, strife, or disunity among believers, um, believers in Jesus living in Corinth, major disunity, in the same city at the same time. I think the reason was because Paul of Tarsus brought a different gospel. Jesus and Paul were preaching two different gospels. I think Paul actually referred to Jesus's gospel as a different gospel in Galatians. And of course, Paul refers to his own teachings as my gospel. So back to our question, what is a Christian? Okay. What is a Christian according to the earliest possible understanding? Is it someone who believes in the new Testament? No. There were generations of believers in Jesus who lived and died before the New Testament. None of the Christians living in Corinth or Galatia or Thessalonica or Philippi, congregations founded by Paul in the 15s and 60s, none of those Christians had even heard of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Paul never heard of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, at least not when he founded those congregations. But here's the kicker Jesus, peace be upon him, never heard of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. What was the Christian? Canon of Jesus himself Of course the question doesn't make any sense Now I mentioned this in a previous podcast But I'll say it again It demonstrates my point If I were to somehow travel back in time To Medina in the year 630 Of the common era Of course Paul you just returned from uh, The holy city of Medina um, If I were to ask the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam To recite uh, Al-Fatiha Or Ayatul Kursi Or Surah Yasin He would know exactly what I was referring to Now imagine that I travel back to the year 32, you know, to Galilee in Northern Palestine. Uh, Imagine that I asked Jesus, peace be upon him, to recite chapter five of the book of Matthew. You know, what, Matthew has a book? Matthew, do you have a book? No, or recite uh, the famous creed of 1 Corinthians 15. What, never heard of it. It's written by Paul, who? So so Christians today have nothing with respect to Jesus that is comparable to what Muslims have with the Quran, okay? So again, what makes a Christian? Belief in the Trinity? Uh, No, even the New Testament writers were not Trinitarians, let alone the Nazarenes under James or the so-called Ebionites uh, who followed them. And when I say that the New Testament writers were not Trinitarians, almost all historians agree with me. And Tertullian was the first Proto-Orthodox writer to even use the term Trinity, Trinitas. He died in the first half of the third century. Mm. So we don't get the Trinity, this Mia usia one essence and three persons. We don't get that until 381 of the Common Era. OK, so the Cappadocians were the first true Trinitarian theologians. So again, what is a Christian? Uh, is it someone who believes in the creed of 1 Corinthians 15? Well, Paul wrote this in the mid-50s, and as we saw in our last, last podcast on the historicity of the crucifixion, Paul is very adamant that he did not receive any teaching from any human teachers, but rather through a direct revelation of what he perceived to be the resurrected Christ. And I believe in revelation, right, as a Muslim, but Paul's revelation put him into, into direct conflict with Jerusalem-based apostles, right? A revelation that put him in conflict with James, So that is a major red flag. Paul says that if Christ was not raised, your faith is in vain. Why? Why did he say that? Presumably because, plausibly because, there were Christians who did not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, right? The gospel of Paul. Paul said, didn't I portray Jesus as crucified? Why did he say that? Plausibly because there were Christians who did not believe that Jesus was crucified. These Christians believed in a different gospel, a gospel that had nothing to do with some crucifixion. So the question, what is a Christian, remains unanswered. I would submit that the most accurate answer we can come up with from the earliest of times is that a, a, quote, Christian is anyone who believed that Jesus of Nazareth was a messianic figure. I mean, that's it. That's sort of the bare bones. That's all we can really say. Jesus of Nazareth was a messiah of some sort. So here's my point. The New Testament canon that we all know today, that we all read today, has a very minimal and restricted relationship with the earliest stages of the messianic movement led by Jesus of Nazareth. These books obviously did not exist, even the the term Christian did not exist. So what existed? Well, oral tradition, individual sayings of Jesus, some of which I think ended up in the canonical gospels albeit in a Greek uh, translation. Now, I mentioned that if we went back in time to speak to Jesus, peace be upon him, he would not understand the reference, John 3.16, for example. A Christian apologist might respond here and say, sure, the book of John did not exist at that time. But if you were to actually quote John 3.16 to Jesus, Jesus would say, oh yeah, that's what I said to Nicodemus, right? This is what a Christian apologist would say. He would also say, similarly, if we went back to Medina in 630, the book called Sahih al-Bukhari did not exist, but the Prophet would recognize individual statements that he made that would later be compiled by Imam al-Bukhari. So just as the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, never saw the various books of hadith, Jesus, peace be upon him, never saw the various books of the Gospels. So this is a fair point. The Gospels are more like hadith than like the Quran. So yes, I, I agree with this. And we know that hadith are at different grades of authenticity. Right? Unlike the Quran, most hadith are not mass transmitted. So Muslim scholars developed a robust methodology of hadith criticism. It's called al-naqd al Hadith. So they examine the hadith individually and determine their authenticity by considering several factors like attestation, social coherence, chain of transmission, etc. So our classical scholars did this. And so the book of Imam al-Bukhari has the highest grade of authenticity. When Christian historical critics apply their method to the four gospels, uh, John 3:16 rarely makes the cut if ever. So if we quoted the text of John 3:16, the words of John 3:16 directly to Jesus, to directly to Jesus, peace be upon him, it's more likely that he would not recognize it. In fact, he would probably repudiate it. Now, Jesus, peace be upon him, was on this earth for 31 to 33 years. And immediately after his departure, many, many stories were related about him. And many, many statements were attributed to him. Right? Uh, and I think we can all agree with this. Muslim, Christian, and secular historian. Only the, G- the Jesus you know, mythicists will disagree here. But by and large, historians agree that Jesus existed. But, but even the mythicists will agree that people were talking about Jesus, even if he never existed right? Many people were relating stories about him and attributing statements to him. Everyone agrees with this, okay? Now, the last verse of the Gospel of John, the very last verse of the Gospel, says something very interesting, okay? And this is the appended epilogue. And Paul, I know you quoted this verse uh, um, as well on a segment you did on the Proto-Gospel of James, which was fantastic. If viewers haven't seen it, they should. So, So here's what it says. Jesus did many other things as well, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole cosmos, the whole world would not have room for the book, the Biblia that would be written, John 21, 25. I mean, the author is being a bit hyperbolic, but the point is well taken. Now, here's something interesting. The full title of Sahih al-Bukhari, its full title is Al-Jami' al-Musnad al-Sahih al-Mukhtasar Min Sallallahu Alaihi wa Sunanihi wa Ayamihi, which means the shortened Authentic collection of supported statements of the Messenger of God. So, in other words, Imam al-Bukhari is saying that, of course, there are hadith outside of his book that are authentic. Okay, His book is a muqtas, <coughs> which is a concise or abridged collection of hadith. Okay, uh, So, there were many, many stories, many, many statements floating around the ancient world about Jesus. Some of the stories and statements were true, Some of them were sort of half true or partially true, and some were false or fabricated. After several decades of oral transmission, some of these stories and statements were written down by various Christians, okay, various people who believed in Jesus' Messiahship in some way. Some of these traditions ended up in books, in Biblia, books that were eventually called the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Other traditions ended up in books called the Gospel of Thomas, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, the Proto-Gospel of James, the Gospel of of peter the didache just to name a few luke tells us in his preamble this is a very important point and i made this point several times in the past but it's very important people understand this luke says in his preamble to his gospel that polloi many people wrote okay many people wrote uh the agesis narratives of jesus what does luke mean by many we i mean we know that luke knew mark and q so that's two narratives but that's not many Mm -hmm. Right. So how is how does Luke use this word polloi elsewhere in his own gospel? We're in in Luke chapter five, verse six. Luke says that when Jesus went fishing with Peter, there were polloi, there were many fish in the net. Same word. So what does he mean? Two or three or ten fish? No, he means that there were so many fish in the net. He says the nets were about to tear. So according to Luke, there were presumably dozens of narratives. Dozens and dozens of gospels about Jesus that were written before he wrote his. Okay. Uh, It is logical that there is truth, partial truth, and falsehood in many of these books. This is only logical. This is reasonable. It is historically unreasonable to claim that only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are absolutely 100% entirely true and that all other texts that contain Jesus's purported statements. Or describe events during his life are all absolutely 100% entirely false. That is unreasonable. Okay, now if Christians want to believe that on faith, okay, fine. Okay, that's, they can believe whatever they want on faith, but don't tell me that I have to take that on faith. I don't. I'm going to use reason. Evidence demonstrates that the entire Quran has a Muhammadan provenance. The text of the Quran goes back to the prophet, according to the vast majority of secular historians. They do not say the same thing about the Gospels when it comes to Jesus. Now, Clement of Alexandria, one of the most celebrated proto-Orthodox church fathers, uh, Clement cited apocryphal, quote, apocryphal gospels in his writings, along with, quote, canonical gospels, because he believed that the former contained truth. This is reasonable. He was reasonable in this regard. Of course, there is gospel truth outside the New Testament. Even Ehrman said that there are statements of Jesus in the gospel of Thomas that are in direct continuity with Jesus. There are statements attributed to Jesus found in the Gospel of Thomas that are more continuous with the teachings of the historical Jesus than what Paul was teaching in the 50s, in the first century. And he specifically mentions the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter as being historically valuable. So to summarize this section, the New Testament canon was not officially and definitively closed until after Islam. Secondly, There were Christians even of the Proto-Orthodox persuasion that differed greatly as to which books were in and which books were out. So let me give you an example. The oldest complete manuscript of the New Testament in existence is called the Codex Sinaiticus, okay? It's dated to about 350, 375. It was discovered at St. Catherine's Monastery at the base of Mount Sinai by a professor, and explorer named Constantine von Tischendorf. Who was the inspiration for Indiana Jones, by the way? Now, oh,
1: right. I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, Indiana Jones, another franchise <laughs> story, by, the way, by, by the woke mob. Now, <laughs> that's a different issue. Though. Now, let me give you a hypothetical scenario here. Okay, hypothetical scenario. Imagine that I gave a lecture at a university called What is Christianity? Okay, that's the name of my lecture. And there were many Christians in the audience. Now, imagine I said to the Christians, Uh, And imagine, now imagine I said that Christians believe that the Jews completely misunderstood the dietary laws of the Torah, that the dietary laws were never meant to be taken literal, but always rather figurative. So don't eat pigs means don't associate with people who are like pigs. Don't eat hyenas means not to be a pervert because the hyena changes its, its nature every year. At one time it's male. next time it's female gender fluid don't be like that okay and don't even get me started on the weasel okay so imagine i imagine i said those things just like that i would probably get confronted by a christian or two who would say what what on earth are you talking about that's not true you're misrepresenting christianity where are you getting this from Mm -hmm. and i would say from christian scripture the epistle of barnabas then he would probably flip through his NIV or his RSV or his KJV and say, that's not in my Bible, that's apocryphal. And then I would say, according to whom? According Mm. to the Council of Trent in the 16th century, yes, it's apocryphal, but not according to the compilers of the Codex Sinaiticus in the fourth century. It is in their canon and it's the oldest complete New Testament. In other words, the actual claim of the modern Christian is that our understanding of Jesus improved as we move forward in time, right? The New Testament of the 16th century onward is more accurate of its depiction of Jesus' teachings than the Codex Sinaiticus written in the 4th century. This is the Christian claim. Okay, fine. So something can actually improve in its accuracy with the passage of time. The New Testament did. Okay, fine. Then so did our understanding of Jesus with the Quran. The Quran is more accurate then the gospel authors, than what the gospel authors is, is depicting as the teachings of Jesus. So don't give me the 600 years later business that they usually do. No. right? Yeah. Now now I agree that the historical Jesus of Nazareth probably did not teach what the Epistle of Barnabas was teaching.? Okay? But I also don't think that Jesus was, was teaching the Trinity or his own divinity. So my point is, there were early Christians, even among the proto-orthodox who believed in teachings that are found outside what would become the New Testament canon. Okay, so let's look at our next questions. Does quoting, paraphrasing, or partially agreeing with a story or a statement in an apocryphal text necessarily mean that that story or statement cannot be true? That's the first question. Next question. Does this this necessitate that the apocryphal text in its entirety is true. In other words, is every single statement or hadith of Jesus quoted in the gospel of Thomas necessarily false because the church declared the gospel of Thomas to be heresy? And if I quote an individual statement from Thomas and believe that it is accurate, does that mean that I have to accept or I do accept the entire gospel as being accurate? So in the Quran, we're told that Mary gave birth under a palm tree, that Jesus spoke as an infant, <clears throat> that Jesus fashioned clay into the figure of birds and gave life to them by God's permission, that God provided food for Mary, presumably through angels, and that Jesus was not crucified. Now, the latter we dealt with already, so we won't look at that today. So here, the Christian polemicists and orientalists will claim that the prophet lifted these stories directly from the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, the... The Syriac infancy gospel, also known as the Arabic infancy gospel, the infancy gospel of Thomas, and the proto-gospel of James, respectively. And I'll deal with these in turn, inshallah. But let me repeat our questions. Does quoting, paraphrasing, or partially agreeing with a story or statement in an apocryphal text necessarily mean that that story or statement cannot be true? Does this necessitate that the apocryphal text in its entirety is true? Okay, now. The author of the book of Jude in the New Testament quoted directly from 1 Enoch 1.9 in Jude 1.14. fourteen. First Enoch was not written by Enoch, according to all biblical scholars. First Enoch is not canonical. In fact, 1 Enoch is heresy. Yet patristic authorities, such as Justin, Irenaeus, Tertullian, they cited 1 Enoch in their writings. Actually, Tertullian explicitly called it scripture. These were proto-orthodox authorities. The Salaf of the Trinitarian. In First Enoch, <clears throat> Enoch is unequivocally told, "You are the son of man." So, according to First Enoch, Enoch was a messianic figure <clears throat> who pre-existed as an angel <clears throat> before coming to earth as a man. He was raptured into heaven by God and finally exalted the chief angel and enthroned as a divine judge. So, you have his translation into heaven, his exaltation, eventual apotheosis. So despite the book of Enoch explicitly identifying Enoch as the son of man of Daniel 7 and not Jesus, many early Christians viewed it as an authority and quote from its passages. So here's a question. If first Enoch is heresy, according to Christians, why did the author of Jude, whom Christians believe to be inspired by God, quote a heretical book? Did God inspire Jude to quote heresy? The Christian response is, no, because not all of First Enoch is heresy. Ah, okay. So now we're getting somewhere. Mm. Jude also confirmed a story found in an apocryphal text known as the Assumption of Moses. Mm. Now, most people know the Enoch reference in Jude, but not this one. <clears throat> now, I want to tell you a story. Several years ago, I, I was dialoguing with a Christian man who was trying to convince me that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, borrowed, as he put it, a story from the infancy gospel of Thomas, right? Mm. The incident of the, the clay birds, etc. cetera. Uh, and again, I'll deal with that text later. Uh, but anyway, he said, my Christian interlocutor, he said that, oh, that story was late. It was pseudepigraphal and it was a fable. And yet the prophet mentioned it in the Quran and said that the Quran was divinely inspired. So I said to him, and I knew that he most likely, you know, had not read the book of Jude very closely. Most Christians probably don't. The focus is on the Pauline epistles and the gospels. <clears throat> so I said to him, I said, did you know that when Moses died, the devil and the archangel Michael had a dispute about his body and Michael ended up rebuking the devil? Did you know that? And I remember he, he, he looked at me with a puzzled expression. And then I said, well, that's what the assumption of Moses says. Mm. <laughs> and he said, what's that? When was that? And I said, it was probably written in the first century BCE or the first century CE. So he looked even more puzzled. So I said to him, would you consider that text late and pseudepigraphal? And would you consider that story to be probably a fable? And he said, yes. So I said, well, Jude did not. Jude confirmed it in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. And the book of Jude is a canonized book of scripture in the New Testament, which according to you is inspired by God. So many of these Christian polemicists employed, you know, a double standard. Double standards. Yeah. A little hypocrisy. You know, this group of polemicists is like this brood of vipers that just never learns. They don't see the plank in their own eyes. You know, it's this hermeneutic of suspicion and hermeneutic of acceptance all over again, you know, even yeah. today. In other words, whatever the Prophet Muhammad does is base and vile and deceitful. But whatever their religious figures do is noble and inspired and truthful. You know, you know, at least the infancy gospel of Thomas was written within 100 years or so of Jesus. The assumption mm. of Moses was written about 1,500 years after Moses, mm. and Jude quotes it as an authority. Uh, here's another example. The, the author of the book of 2 Timothy right, claims to be Paul. However, most historians believe the author is pretending to be Paul. In other words, he's forging a letter in Paul's name. This is according to the vast majority of critical scholars. But let's grant, OK, Paul wrote it, no problem. Paul wrote you know, 2 Timothy. Now, listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. <clears throat> he says, and I quote, And Janus and Jambris opposed Moses. So these people of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith also oppose the truth. So one more time. And Janus and Jambris opposed Moses. So these people of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith also oppose the truth. Who in the world are Janus and Jambris? Now, you can go to any Bible concordance. And type in Janus and Jambres and I promise you that they are not mentioned anywhere in the whole of the Hebrew Bible nowhere in the canonical Tanakh so where did Paul get these names maybe he was given these names by the Holy Spirit and that's and they were previously unknown a Christian might make this claim okay that's his faith conviction if he thinks that there are good reasons for believing Paul's claim of receiving divine revelation I don't but maybe he does but that would be a different discussion but just looking at the context of 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it's abundantly clear that Paul believed that his readers were already familiar with these names, Janus and Jambres. And as it turns out, there was a text written in the first century, the apocryphon of Janus and Jambres, origin of Alexandria in the third century, Okay, referenced it uh, as the source of 2 Timothy 3.8. Of course, Origen, who was an extremely influential church father, would later be anathematized by the Catholic Church in 553, Constantinople II. So Janus and Jambres were the names of two of the magicians in the court of Pharaoh who opposed Moses. Now, according to this text, the apocryphon of Janus and Jambres, when Janus died, his brother Jambres was able to uh, summon his soul from Hades, from Sheol by using a spell he had found in one of his books of magic. So, so Jambres was a necromancer, basically. Uh, and then the soul of Janus from beyond the grave, while experiencing burning torment, warned his brother Jambres uh, not to contend with Moses uh, and Aaron. So, so here's my question. Should I immediately consider Paul of Tarsus to be a fraud simply because he mentions the names Janus and Jambres, names found in an apocryphal text written in the first century? Some fifteen hundred years removed from Moses, should I consider him a plagiarist and a fabulist? Based on this alone, I would not jump to that conclusion. Why? Because it's possible that the Apocryphon of Janus and Jambrace was not Paul's directly direct literary source. But even if it was, that that does not immediately invalidate Paul. Okay. Alternatively, it's still it's still possible, although unlikely, that these two names were passed down orally. For 15 centuries among the Jews, and Paul was just kind of drawing from that popular oral tradition mm. that Paul never even heard of the apocryphon of Janus and Jambres. But here comes the here comes the hypocrisy: when the Quran seems to confirm a story about Jesus or Mary found in an apocryphal Christian text, the Prophet Muhammad is often called a fraud, a forger, a fabulist, a plagiarist, okay, etc. But there's a difference. The Christian apocryphal text, and the word apocryphal is in quotes, because again, there was no definitive and official apocrypha in Christianity until after Islam. So the, so the, the Christian so called apocryphal texts that mention these stories that are seemingly also found in the Quran are only 100 to 130 years removed from Jesus, while Paul's apparent source, the Apocryphon of Janus and Jambres, was 1,500 years removed from Moses. Mm. Now, again, somebody might say, but it doesn't come from direct literary dependence upon a specific text, but from an oral tradition. Okay, so which scenario is more plausible historically, that an authentic oral tradition about Janus and Jambres was passed down for 15 centuries from the time of Moses to the author of the Apocryphon, Uh, okay or that an authentic oral tradition about Jesus or Mary was passed down for one century? from Jesus and his disciples to, let's say, the author of the Proto-Gospel of James. Which is more plausible historically? Uh, Let's take one example. Angels feeding Mary in the temple. So this is mentioned in the Proto-Gospel of James and seemingly in the Quran. And we'll examine this text in detail a bit later, uh, inshallah, but here's what I think happened. And this is absolutely plausible, reasonable, and logical, okay? So at the end of Jesus's life, okay, uh, of course, you know, Muslims and Christians maintain that he ascended, most secular historians maintain that he was probably buried in a common grave somewhere outside the city, and that was the end of Jesus. Whatever your position is, at the end of his life several people who believed in Jesus's messiahship in some way told a story about Mary being attended to by angels prior to the birth of Jesus leading up to the Annunciation. Is this plausible? Is it plausible that this story was being told? Of course several decades then go by several decades of oral tradition Uh, the story is told and retold and most likely modified a little bit from mouth to mouth decade after decade then this story for some reason did not end up in what would eventually be called matthew mark luke or john why well there are a number of tenable reasons perhaps their authors had not heard of it uh, because they lived in different geographical locations Uh, perhaps they knew of it But they did not agree with it for theological reasons. Uh, Perhaps they knew of it, but did not want to place the focus on Mary, but rather on Jesus. Of course, in the Quran, Mary, peace be upon her, is a highly respected and revered figure, Uh, so there is focus on Mary in the Quran. Now, from a Christian perspective, what I just explained is totally plausible. Why? Well, first of all, Christians must believe that there are many true stories about Jesus, that are not found in the gospel. They have to believe this. Why? Because the author of the gospel of John, whom Christians believe was inspired by the Holy Spirit, says so. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole cosmos would not have room for the books that would be written. There is potential truth outside of the four gospels by admission of the Holy Spirit, if you believe that the gospel of John was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But here, we don't need the Holy Spirit to tell us. This is true according to reason and common sense. From a more historical perspective, we know that even the Q source uh, document predated Mark. uh, And Mark did not use it according to the dominant position. Why didn't Mark use Q? Well, the same possible reasons that I just mentioned. Maybe Mark had not known of Q because he was in a different place. Maybe he knew of Q but did not agree with its content for theological reasons. We, we know that many of the Luke and Jesus's most celebrated stories and parables in the travel narrative of Luke. So this is Luke chapter 9 to 19. Many of these uh, stories and parables were not recorded by Mark, Matthew, or John. The Good Samaritan, the Pharisee and the tax collector, Abraham and Lazarus, the prodigal son, none of these are in Mark, Matthew, or John. My point is, just because a certain story about Jesus or statement of Jesus is found in one gospel, that does not mean that it is necessarily false historically. So by false here, I mean something that was not passed down from the first believers in Jesus. Obviously, a secular historian would not agree with the content of the story uh, that Mary was fed by angels simply because secular historians do not consider the supernatural in their method of doing history. And I don't expect a modern historian working within the paradigm of of modern naturalistic historiography to conclude that Mary was fed by angels. I believe that because I'm not strictly a naturalist and I trust the source of the Quran. What I am saying is that it is plausible historically that this story originated with the earliest of believers in the Jesus messianic movement, with people who knew Jesus and learned directly from him. Now, an atheist skeptic could say, okay, fine. Uh, but Jesus was probably lying, okay? I mean, I disagree, I mean, but that's a discussion for another time. That's a separate debate. Can the historical Jesus uh, be trusted? Now, the story of Mary being fed by angels is not multiply attested, right? Like the cleansing of the temple. And I, I can explain why. First of all, the cleansing of the temple was done in public during a very busy time in Jerusalem. Right, It would have been hard to not include this event in the gospel. So something like that probably happened. Secondly, it's conceivable that this story of Mary was related by multiple Christian writers in the first and second centuries, but their writings are simply not extant. There were dozens of gospels. Why is it that the only Christian writer that we know of uh, who wrote between the years 50 and 65 was Paul of Tarsus? Are we really to believe that Paul was the only Christian writing letters during this time? James was the leader of the Jerusalem-based Nazarenes for 30 years, yet we have zero from him. Where are his letters? Where are the authentic letters and writings of Peter and John or any other apostle? In my view, the story that, uh, that Mary was fed by angels was probably related by Mary herself to Jesus, who told some of his disciples. These disciples told others, including some Pauline Christians, until eventually the story appeared in some form in the proto-gospel of James, which got some things right and some things wrong, just like the four canonical gospels. They got some things right, and they got some things wrong. Not everything that the historical Jesus said appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every reasonable person has to agree with this. Not everything that the historical Jesus said appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus lived for over 30 years. If someone claims that there cannot possibly be any authentic sayings of Jesus recorded outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then that's just being delusional. But here's the thing even with multiple attestation we have to be careful when it comes to the gospels because very often matthew and luke simply copy from mark right so so they are not necessarily independent right sometimes these criteria of modern historiography have to be sort of weighed against each other uh, for example uh, and i mentioned this in the past according to dale martin at yale who's a trinitarian christian mark ten eighteen is the most historical verse in the New Testament. Why are you calling me good? There's no one good but one that is God. This exact wording is also found basically in Matthew 19, 17 and Luke 18, 18. Now, now, Matthew and Luke took this from Mark, so it is not exactly multiply attested, but Jesus' statement is certainly socially and theologically you know, coherent and appropriate. So Jesus probably said something like this, but when Jesus quoted the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4, in 1229 of Mark, both Matthew and Luke eliminate the Shema from Jesus' lips. He, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Jesus quoting the Shema is definitely not multiply attested. However, it makes sense why Matthew and Luke would eliminate those words from Jesus' lips. They were embarrassed that their divine Son of God had been so explicitly monotheistic. Therefore, Jesus most likely did quote the Shema even though it is only found in one gospel. And of course, it makes total contextual sense that a rabbi would quote the Shema. Okay, So a Christian in good faith cannot say that, that the story of angels feeding Mary is definitely false or obviously invented by the author of the Proto-Gospel of James, because then, if we're being consistent, <clears throat> the, the prodigal son story that is only found in the travel narrative of Luke must also be false, because Luke just made it up, right? So then all of the special Luke and material, material unique only to Luke, is false. In John, which is 30 to 50 years after Mark, and 15 to 20 years after Matthew and Luke, John, we'll call him John, John tells us that Jesus spoke at length about someone called the paraclete. Since no one before John, not Paul, and none of the synoptic authors even mentioned the word paraclete, are Christians prepared to say that John just made it up? That is definitely false. Are they prepared to say that the Christians who produced Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not even know about the Paraclete? Now, maybe John was given special revelation by God, uh, and it was God who directly informed John about the Paraclete. If Christians want to make this argument, that's fine, but that is not a historical argument. It's a theological argument. It's the same with the Johann and I am statements. Now, now a Christian might say to me, okay, okay then, even though the I am statements of, John, uh, of Jesus are only found in one gospel, the gospel of John, they could still be plausibly historical, because I said earlier that just because a statement of Jesus is found in one gospel, that does not mean that it is necessarily false historically. So the Christian argument is, if the particle sun per, uh, pericope is plausibly historical, then so is before Abraham was, I am. So I would disagree, And I think there's a major difference between these two statements, okay? The prodigal son pericope is all about teshuva. It's about repentance. It is completely appropriate contextually. However, if Christians are taking before Abraham was, I am, to be a divine claim of a Jewish rabbi, which most do, then it is totally inappropriate and thus highly unlikely to be the words of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Furthermore, I mean, I can understand how many early believers in Jesus could have missed or forgotten one, two, or three of Jesus's parables. And the Quran actually says this. It says that the early Christians, they they forgot or disregarded some of what they were given. So I can understand Hmm. how a few parables or stories were missed, but it is very difficult for me to wrap my head around how, if Jesus made explicit divine claims, They were only recorded by John. How did almost everybody miss all of them? In other words, if
1: if I... uh, You make a very uh, excellent point. Just to say that the point you're making has often been made by very senior biblical scholars like uh, Jimmy Dunn uh, in Durham, England. Uh, Bart Ehrman, of course, mentions the same. This is a commonplace. If he walked around, Jesus walked around saying, before Abraham was, I am, and all the other I am statements, Why? Does no one ever record this until the very last gospel to written towards the end of the first or beginning of the second century? Why does Mark admit it, ignore it? Why does Luke, who sought to, you know, give everything from the beginning an account, why does he fail to mention this? Ditto yeah. Matthew, ditto Q, etc. And Paul, ditto yeah. and Paul. Even. No one yeah. mentioned. it. It was extraordinary omission, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So to, to use
0: the time travel analogy again, if I travel back in time and ask Matthew, If I asked him, why didn't you include the parable of the Good Samaritan? He might say, well, oh, I missed that. I forgot about that. Or he might say, "Uh, uh, I never heard that one. Maybe I wasn't there that day. (laughs) But could he really say this about the I am statements? Did he really forget to mention that Jesus claimed to be God on multiple occasions? Did he not hear Jesus ever make one of these numerous I am statements that John apparently heard numerous times? Interestingly, according to Dr. James Tabor, and he mentioned this on Blogging Theology, the pericope of the Pharisee in the tax collector, which is only found in Luke's travel narrative, the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, in which the tax collector was justified, i.e. forgiven by God, due to his humility of his repentance, that story is historically more likely to represent the utterance of a first century Galilean rabbi than what Paul of Tarsus was teaching in 1 Corinthians and Romans chapter 10 about eating and drinking the flesh and blood of a god, right? I mean, yeah. this is called theophagy. It was very common in pagan mystery religions. Luke was writing in 80 to 85, Paul in the 50s. So Paul is writing earlier, but his claims about Jesus' teachings make less sense historically. Yeah. In the Didache, uh, written around 100 of the Common Era, so plausibly before the Gospel of John and the Book of Acts, but after Paul, of course, the Didache claims... Uh, claims to be a record uh, of the actual teachings of the 12 apostles, which they inherited from Jesus. So in the Didache, the the Eucharist is simply a Thanksgiving meal without any reference to eating or drinking the flesh and blood of a God. So Mm -hmm. the Eucharist celebration in the Didache is more plausible historically than what Paul, Mark, Matthew, and John wrote. In the Quran, Jesus celebrates a feast with his disciples. and And it more closely, Parallels the Didache than the canonical gospels. It's quite amazing. So, which is more historical? Which was more likely historically that a first century rabbi from the Galilee taught his Jewish followers to humble themselves before God and to repent with all sincerity, or that a first century rabbi from the Galilee taught his Jewish followers to masticate his flesh and drink his blood and worship him as a god? Now, According to the editors of the New Oxford Annotated Bible, there are quote literary echoes from the wisdom of Solomon present in Paul's epistle to the Romans and Second Corinthians. The wisdom of Solomon is a book found in the Old Testament apocrypha. And this isn't some you know fringe fringe opinion that nobody else agrees with. These editors are bona fide academics. You know these aren't you know quacks like this guy who wrote this critical Quran. These are mainstream historians of the Bible whose Bible is read and studied in universities all around the world. In fact, Paul's engagement with and allusions to the wisdom of Solomon is so obvious, the authors of the Moratorian canon in the second century felt compelled to conclude that it must be canonical, the wisdom of Solomon. Paul alluded to it up and down in his letters. But with Paul, things get even more interesting. According to the New Testament, Paul quoted pagan poets to support his Christology. And I mentioned this in the past as well, according to Acts chapter seventeen verse twenty-eight, uh, when Paul was at the Areopagus, right, he, he quoted something from the hymn to Zeus by a Stoic philosopher named Eratus of Soli. Uh, Paul, in his letter uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three, he quoted the poet Menander. So, how do Christians explain this? How do they defend Paul here? How do they defend their belief that God inspired Paul to quote a pagan poet? Well, here's their defense. Not everything a heretic or a a pagan says is wrong. Okay, in principle, I agree. A a Christian once told me that in a sermon, uh, the preacher may quote Plato or Shakespeare or Nietzsche. And that doesn't mean that the preacher agrees with everything Plato or Shakespeare or Nietzsche ever said. Mm. I agree. So this is the method of Paul and his school. Paul and his school, his followers, that is to say Paul and the New Testament writers who followed him, and the Proto-Orthodox fathers who followed them, this was their method. Namely, they would quote, paraphrase, and incorporate diverse texts and traditions into their writings, as long as those texts and traditions complemented their overall message. And those texts and traditions were both Jewish and Gentile. Right. This does not imply that everything those texts and traditions said was considered true and accurate by Paul and his school. And again, by school, I mean the gospel writers and the proto Orthodox fathers. I don't necessarily have a problem with their method. You know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he said, Wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever he finds it, it is his. He said, Inna mina shi'ari that in some poetry there is wisdom, right? Now, given that this was the method of the gospel writers, it follows then that this was the method of the New Testament Jesus because the Gospel writers wrote the Gospels. So we will look specifically at the words of the New Testament Jesus shortly, inshallah. But first, let me say this. Do all of the statements of Jesus recorded in the four Gospels plausibly go back to the historical Jesus of Nazareth or his immediate disciples? According to most historians, the answer is no. Uh, For example, the famous Jesus seminar uh, in particular, and I don't totally agree with them, but this is a good example that Jesus seminar concluded. After a six year study of the Gospels, that only 18%, 1 8% of the words attributed to Jesus in the New Testament and the fifth Gospel, Thomas, are likely authentic. So 82% are likely inauthentic. They came to an absolute consensus, and I agree here totally, they came to an absolute consensus that the historical Jesus never claimed to be a divine being, he never claimed to be the Davidic Messiah or King Messiah. And he never claimed he was going to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. They said that these were claims that others made for Jesus, not claims that Jesus made about himself. Now, by contrast, do all of the Quran, does all of the Quran uh, plausibly go back to the historical Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him? According to the general consensus, the answer is yes. But for this podcast, here's the more important question. Do all of the statements of Jesus recorded in the Quran? and all of the events recorded about him in the Qur'an plausibly go back to Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples. I would argue tentatively, yes, although some sayings and events are more plausible than others. But are we as Muslims beholden to the method of uh, modern Western historiography? No, of course not. So our uh, epistemology is three-pronged, generally speaking. So it's based on our senses, reason, and revelation. And as much as possible, we try to, you know, bring these into harmony because God gave us our senses. He created our intellects and he revealed the revelation. So based upon our worldview, we maintain that there are things God mentions in scripture, either in the Quran or upon the speech of the prophet, uh, that are from the unseen, like, you know, things about angels and demons, day of judgment, but also events from the past. So the past. Uh, is also unseen so the quran might mention a past event something that happened in this world that no that no one prior to the quran had mentioned the skeptic might say that the prophet just made it up right but at the same time if the quran confirms a story or revises a tradition that was known before the prophet the skeptic says the prophet was a plagiarist right? it's called the hermeneutic of suspicion they're just prejudiced against the prophet however i would i will say this, unlike the New Testament, it is my contention that the Qur'an attributes nothing to Jesus that is historically implausible. The Qur'an attributes nothing to Jesus that is historically implausible, outside of miracles, of course, which are meant to be implausible. Even it's denial of the crucifixion. Watch our last podcast if people don't believe me on that. Okay, so here's what we can gather from the Qur'an as to what Jesus, peace be upon him, said and what he did. Number one, Jesus claimed that he was born miraculously from a virgin. So this is the question. Is it plausible that he made this claim? Now, some modern critics, be they Christians or atheists, attack the Christology of the Quran by claiming that the Quran um, is sort of a mishmash of, of various Christian opinions about Jesus with no real consistency. For example, they'll say that even though the Quran denies the divinity of Jesus, It insists upon the virgin birth, but the Christians who believed in the virgin birth did so precisely because they thought Jesus was divine, right? So their claim is the Quran denies Jesus's divinity, but accepts the virgin birth, not realizing that the latter only indicated his divinity. This is the claim. In other words, only Christians who worship Jesus believe that he was born miraculously. So this claim is false, and I'll show you why. But first, let me clarify something. This is very important. I'm not saying that it is historical, according to the standards of modern secular historiography, that Jesus' birth was miraculous. Again, modern historians do not consider miracles in their method because miracles are the least probable occurrences by definition. Okay? Um, So modern historians, they don't touch the supernatural. What I am saying is that it is plausible historically that Jesus said, that he was born miraculously okay in other words this was not something that was invented later it likely has its origin in the very first generation of believers in jesus now again an atheist might say fine so what why would you believe him why would you believe jesus that's a different question i'll get to that a little bit later inshallah now i mentioned at the beginning of my lecture that that the miraculous birth of jesus is one example where critical historians contend that the Bible and the Quran, by extension, engage in literary mimesis of Hellenistic tradition. In other words, <clears throat> when it comes specifically to the birth of Jesus, the early Christians basically replaced the names Perseus, Hercules, and Romulus with Jesus, and the Quran followed suit. Okay, so, so now there are some modern Muslims who claim that the Quran does not actually say That Jesus was born miraculously. This is what some modern Muslims have resorted to. Mm. I obviously disagree. I think the Quran is clear on this issue, and I want to spend a few moments talking about this because, like I said, this is really important, and and I think Christians will agree with me here up until a certain point, and then we're going to have a parting of the ways. So here's the issue. Neither Paul nor Mark mentioned the virgin birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke mentioned it, but they came after Paul and Mark. So here the skeptic claims that Matthew and Luke probably just made it up. All right? Otherwise Paul and Mark would have mentioned it. Why did Matthew and Luke make it up? Because they wanted to appeal to their Gentile audiences and miraculous births of Greek heroes was very common, so this is the argument. And if we look at Justin Martyr in his first apology, it's very telling what he says. So he says, addressing pagans, I'll just quote this. I didn't write it on the slides, but I'll just read it here. And when this is Justin Martyr addressing pagans. And when we say also that the word who was the firstborn of God was produced without sexual union and that he, Jesus Christ, our teacher was crucified and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. We propound nothing different than what you believe regarding those whom you esteem sons of Jupiter. We propound nothing different. And then he mentions Asclepius and Bacchus and Her- 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 Heracles and Perseus. So Justin admits that his Jesus, the Jesus of his Christian faith, the Jesus of early Proto-Orthodoxy, this Jesus mirrors very closely the sons of Jupiter, that is, the sons of Zeus in Greek mythology. So did Matthew and Luke invent the virgin birth of Jesus in order to appeal <coughs> to the Greek audiences? Well, at first glance, this seems plausible, but when we examine a bit more closely, this becomes highly unlikely. So why didn't Paul or Mark mention the virgin birth? Okay, so the first issue is, uh, we don't have all of Paul's letters. According to most scholars, Paul wrote a lot more than seven genuine letters. So it's possible that he did mention the virgin birth in other letters that are not extant. Secondly, we don't have any authentic letters from James, Peter, or John, or any actual disciple who may have mentioned the virgin birth. I mean, these are arguments from silence, but they're still arguments. Uh, thirdly, many Christian apologists contend that Paul does at least allude to the virgin birth in Galatians. 4.4, 4, when he says that Christ was, quote, born of a woman, right? So their argument is, why would he say that? Aren't we all born of women? Maybe he means that Christ was only born of a woman and not of a man. and Maybe. Uh, but then again, he says in Romans 1 uh, that Christ was, quote, born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, right? And Christian apologists may say, well, maybe here Paul meant that Mary was a descendant of David. The other thing is, we don't have access to a copy of Mark's uh, complete gospel until about 370 of the common era. So that's almost 300 years after Mark wrote the original. Maybe the original of Mark mentioned the virgin birth. Um, there was something called the secret gospel of Mark, which may have actually been an, uh, a different version of Mark's gospel. Some say it's a forgery. Now, personally, I don't find these arguments very uh, convincing. So it seems to me uh, that, yeah, Paul and Mark probably did not know of the virgin birth uh, new new uh new testament textual critics uh, point out that uh, mark tells us that jesus's family his own family presumably including mary thought jesus was mentally beside himself at one point so mark 321 now certainly mary would have remembered that Jesus was born from her miraculously uh, for mark Jesus became the son of god at his baptism that's adoptionist christology in paul Jesus became the son of god at his resurrection although paul believed that Christ pre-existed his body in some sense, as some sort of lesser divine being or angel perhaps. But both Paul and Mark seem to have accepted that Jesus had a human father who was a descendant of David. This was the prevalent Jewish expectation at that time, that God would send a Davidic King Messiah. So for Paul and Mark, it is very important that Jesus is the Davidic King Messiah. Now, just to push back a little bit against the critics, uh, in Mark 3.21, Mark does not actually say explicitly that Jesus's family thought he was beside himself. Okay. That's one interpretation. Yes. The verse says, and having heard this, the ones near to him came, probably his family to seize him for they were saying he is beside himself. Okay. So who was saying he is beside himself? The ones near to him or the Aklos, the crowd mentioned in the previous verse so not his family. In other words, his family came to rescue him from the crowd because they were saying that he's crazy. So it's a bit ambiguous, okay? But let's assume that um, Paul and Mark did not know of the virgin birth. If that is true, does that mean that nobody knew of it? Uh, In my opinion, it's highly unlikely that Matthew and Luke uh, invented the virgin birth, and I'll tell you why. Uh, First of all, Was the virgin birth mentioned in Q? So, like, remember, according to many scholars, Q likely predated not only Mark, but also the Pauline epistles. It was not contaminated with Pauline Christology. Usually when Mark, sorry, sorry, usually when Matthew and Luke have material in common that is missing from Mark, scholars conclude that it likely came from Q. Now, Matthew and Luke both tell us that Jesus was born miraculously. So doesn't that mean that it was mentioned in Q? Well, the answer is most likely no, however. There are simply not enough word-for-word agreements between Matthew and Luke to suggest that they had a common written source when it came to the birth of Jesus. However, Matthew and Luke knew the broad strokes. Jesus was born in Bethlehem to Mary when she was a virgin. This is what they know. Where they differ is on almost all of the details in their birth narratives, okay? But here's the key. Matthew and Luke wrote independently of each other. Okay, so what are the chances that they suddenly decided independently that Jesus was born from a virgin? I would say not very high. In other words, Matthew and Luke must have inherited this belief about Jesus from those before them. They received the virgin birth as factual, but then constructed their own unique narratives around this event. Okay, this is similar to how they dealt with the Nazareth Bethlehem problem. Right? Both Matthew and Luke knew from received tradition that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. He was called Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua HaNutzri, but was somehow born in Bethlehem. So each evangelist constructed his own unique narrative and plot devices in order to get Jesus born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. So the virgin birth was not in queue, but it was no doubt a received tradition that Matthew and Luke incorporated into their gospels uh, in their own unique ways. Here's another thing. Why would Pauline Christians invent the virgin birth if their claim was that Jesus was the Davidic King Messiah? The virgin birth completely destroys this claim. Tribal identity is taken from the father. If Jesus had no father, then he's not from David. It's as simple as that. Perhaps Paul and Mark knew of the idea of Jesus's virgin birth, that was sort of in the ether, but chose not to mention it because it clearly flies into the face of their belief that Jesus was the Davidic King Messiah. Paul and Mark perhaps could not reconcile this. Now, Matthew and Luke, however, just could not ignore it. Why? Because the virgin birth was so popular to ignore, was too popular to ignore by the time they wrote their gospels. So both of them felt compelled to offer some sort of explanation. So as we know, both evangelists gave, us, you know, gave uh, Jesus a genealogy, right, um, which shows that Jesus's adopted father, Joseph, was a descendant of David. Of course, their genealogies of Jesus are extremely contradictory. So the sort of you know, ad hoc solution of Matthew and Luke was that Jesus's adopted father, Joseph, was a descendant of David. And so Jesus somehow magically inherited his adopted father's lineage. So I don't think it's a good solution. Now remember what James Tabor said. He said, "If we want to understand who Jesus was, we need to understand who James was." Yeah. Right. Patriarch. So here's a good question: Did the Ebionites believe in the virgin birth? Remember, the Ebionites were the spiritual successors of James the Just, the Jamesonian Nazarenes who vehemently opposed Paul. Okay. The Ebionites were Torah observant Jewish Christians who denied that Jesus was God. And considered Paul to be an apostate and a charlatan. According to Irenaeus, the Ebionites denied the virgin birth, but according to Origen and Eusebius, they accepted the virgin birth. So it seems like there was a difference of opinion among them. But here's the thing, if if the virgin birth was invented by later Pauline Christians like Matthew and Luke, or even Pauline Christians who lived sort of in the interim between Mark and Matthew, so between 70 and 85, it seems highly unlikely that many Ebionites would have taken that belief from them. The Ebionites hated Paul and his adherents. It makes more sense that the Ebionites took their belief in the virgin birth from James and his adherents, the ones who opposed Paul. Now, a skeptic might say, fine, the virgin birth was a belief of the first Christians, the Jamesonian Nazarenes, but they still took the idea from the pagans, okay? It was mimetic of Greek mythology. So let's go back to what Justin said. Justin Martyr. So, it is true that many pre-Christian pagan gods were four things. Okay, they were four things. And again, I didn't put this on the slide, but people can maybe uh, note this, uh, that these pre-Christian pagan gods were, number one, born miraculously. Number two, they died for the sins of their people. Number three, they were somehow resurrected. And number four, they ascended into heaven. I would contend that only numbers two and three, that is to say, died for the sins of the people, and were somehow resurrected. These two are strictly pagan. The idea of a dying and rising savior man-god is pagan. Yes, that is to say, not Jewish. Paul borrowed this motif because he was highly Hellenized, ethnically Jewish, but highly Hellenized, first century amateur philosopher from Tarsus. So here's my challenge. Name me one Jew in all of Jewish tradition that predates the Hellenistic period that died for the sins of others and was resurrected. You know, just one. Now, looking at number one and number number one and four, born miraculously and ascended into heaven. Okay, so yes, the Greeks believed that many of their heroes were born miraculously and ascended into heaven. But this was also a prevalent pre-Hellenistic Jewish belief. Okay, these were ancient Israelite motifs. Miraculous births and ascensions are found in the Tanakh, like Isaac and Elijah or Enoch, yeah. respectively. Okay? So to conclude this section, it is plausible, it is plausible that the belief in the miraculous birth of Jesus goes back to the first, quote, Christians led by James, the brother of Jesus. Matthew and Luke had access to Q. Q was very Jewish in its teachings. Matthew and Luke also had access to the tradition of Jesus's virgin birth. And although the virgin birth was not mentioned in Q, It was still likely representative of the teachings of the first Christians like James. And where did James get this from? I think likely from Jesus. It was not mimetic of Greek mythology, but rather a continuation of the established Jewish miracle birth tradition. Okay, now according to modern secular historians, there are uh, really two main explanations for why the early Christians Claimed that the virgin that the birth of Jesus was a miracle. The virgin birth of Jesus was a miracle. Um, because obviously for them, the virgin birth is not history, right? They don't acknowledge miracles. For them, it is historical that the claim was made. But who first made the claim? So one is obviously the mimesis argument, right? The early Hellenistic Christians first claimed it in order to model Jesus after the sons of Zeus. So the claim was made after the time of Jesus to deify Jesus. But other historians, and and Ehrman mentions this, other historians say that there is evidence that the virgin birth claim goes back to the time of Mary herself, that it was known that she became pregnant while unmarried. This was simply known about her during her whole life. In fact, Mark tells us that Jews in Galilee referred to Jesus as the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. He's the only gospel writer to do so, possibly revealing... (laughs) that Jesus's father's identity was in dispute during Jesus's own lifetime. So then, you know, maybe Mary or her family or someone had to invent a story about a miraculous birth, according to historians, whatever historians say. Now the Quran defends Mary and calls her Siddiqah, which means truthful, right? The important thing for us is that many secular historians admit that the virgin birth explanation plausibly goes back to Mary herself. So here's something interesting I mean this is you know circumstantial, but something for historians and skeptics who take this position to think about um, and this is related to the question I mentioned earlier uh, that is raised by skeptics. Why would you even believe Jesus if he claimed his birth was miraculous? So Jesus of Nazareth, peace be upon him, is easily top three of the most influential human beings to ever walk the planet right Is it just a big coincidence that Jesus's mother was claiming? a miraculous birth, and, and that her son would become someone very special. And then her son just happens to become this absolute giant of human history. I mean, top three most influential human beings, a 30-year-old rabbi from Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago. I and mean, just something to think about. And then there was an unlettered Arab man in the Hejaz in the seventh century who said that his religion, Islam, would eventually become the dominant religion in the world, at a time when there were a handful of Muslims. So, that man, the Prophet Muhammad, the number one most influential human being in history, also said that Jesus was born miraculously. Right? So, just something to think about. I mean, just, I, I try to give an analogy here, something people can sort of compare. It's, it's not very uh, adequate, but imagine a video surfaced uh, from 1960 uh, in which Michael Jordan's mother uh, said that she had a dream. Okay. And in this dream, a voice told her that she was going to give birth to the greatest basketball player ever in 1960, before Michael Jordan was even born. Okay. That would be something to think about, right? I don't think we can just ignore that, right? In my view, uh, Jesus was born the way he was in order to be a sign to the Israelites that he was something special. And the most special thing a man could be in Judaism was a prophet. Right? So, Islam also solves this Messiah virgin birth dilemma. Jesus was the Messiah, but he wasn't the King Messiah, at least not a Davidic King Messiah. He was a prophet Messiah. He was a spiritual master, not a political leader. So, so I agree with the Jesus seminar here that the historical Jesus never claimed to be the Davidic Messiah. Now, one last thing I'll mention about this, and then we'll move on here. Uh, So, I said, uh, as I said, Matthew and Luke did not invent the virgin birth. The virgin birth tradition of Jesus predates their Gospels. Okay, Uh, Luke, however, in his unique telling of the story, does give it a Greek spin. Okay, so did Luke invent the virgin birth? No, but he did give it a Greek flavoring, okay, in his telling of the story, right? So this idea, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee, and for this reason... Right? The thing born shall be called the Son of God. So the Luke and Jesus is this demigod, this, this half-man, half-god like Perseus, Hercules, or Dionysus. Okay? So there is an element of Hellenistic mimesis in Luke's telling of the story. What did Matthew do? Matthew also gave it a Greek spin, but he couched his Greek interpretation in Jewish language. Okay, So Matthew knew that miraculous births were indicative within Jewish tradition of the emergence of great figures but for matthew finding a specific Tanakh proof text was very important okay but matthew chose a text that probably has that probably has nothing to do with jesus so in isaiah 7 right isaiah tells uh, ahaz he says (laughs) the uh, the young woman will conceive a son uh the karath shmo immanuel and she shall call his name emmanuel now, now Matthew was looking at the Greek of this verse, and the Greek word for the woman, alma, is he parthenos. And I know some critics of the New Testament make a big, big deal out of this. They say that alma means young woman and parthenos means virgin. But in fact, alma could also mean virgin. You can call a virgin an alma. There's no problem with that. Matthew's r- real error is in his interpretation of Emmanuel. Okay, First of all, Jesus' name was not Emmanuel. It was Jesus. Secondly, by pointing out that Emmanuel means God with us, Matthew wants to say that Jesus was a divine being, a God, son of the God. So, this is his Greek spin, his Greco Roman spin. By doing so, Matthew breaks a fundamental law of Jewish exegesis. His Midrash, right, violates the Peshat. In other words, his subtle interpretation violates the plain sense of the Tanakh's overall theology. And I mentioned this in the past. The the Christian exegetes were notorious for doing this, with Isaiah chapter fifty-three. So, in in my view, this verse Isaiah seven fourteen has nothing to do with Jesus or Mary. Matthew just wanted to find something. This text Isaiah seven fourteen did not produce the virgin birth of Jesus. I want to make this clear. Matthew did not read this in Isaiah and decide that Jesus was born from a virgin. How do we know? Luke was also familiar with the virgin birth, and he did not quote this verse, and Luke did not know Matthew. So no, Matthew already knew of the virgin birth, uh, but he went back into the Tanakh to find a specific prophecy of it. This is also how Matthew constructed his crucifixion narrative. Matthew believed that Jesus was crucified. He was a Pauline Christian, but how did he write his crucifixion narrative? He scoured the Tanakh, for things he could use. Aha, the, the dogs have encircled me, they divide up my garments, I can use that. So let me say it again. Matthew believed that Jesus was born when Mary was unmarried, she was yet to be married. In other words, she was a virgin. Matthew wanted to find a prophecy of this in the Tanakh. So he read the Greek translation of the Old Testament and his eyes settled upon the words Parthenos and Emmanuel in uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. But the virgin birth of Jesus does not hinge on Isaiah 714. Luke who also, Luke who wrote independently of Matthew also believed that Jesus was born from a virgin, and Luke did not cite Isaiah 714. Clearly both Matthew and Luke were drawing from an antecedent tradition that Jesus was born from a virgin. It is in the way that they try to explain this event that is problematic. So Luke tried to appeal to his Greek audience, by explicitly modeling Jesus like a son of Zeus, while Matthew was more subtle in his Greek appeal by interpreting a Tanakh verse through a Greek lens. Okay, what else do we gather about Jesus from the Quran? Jesus claimed that his mother was fed by angels. Now, given her claim that that the birth of her son was miraculous, this is not implausible that she would make this claim. Uh, And we'll talk about this. This is related to Christian Apocrypha. That's why it's in red. Jesus claimed that he spoke as an infant. Given his claim of miraculous birth, this is not implausible. We'll also talk about this. It's related to the Christian apocrypha. Jesus claimed that he formed birds from clay and gave them life by God's leave. Again, given his previous claims, this is not implausible. We'll also talk about this. It's related to the Christian apocrypha. Jesus claimed to be a servant of God. Makes total sense. Jesus was only sent to the Israelites, the Jews. Makes total sense. Jesus claimed to be a prophet, a healer, a uh, prophet Messiah. Makes total sense. Jesus claimed to be a word from God. Okay, so... Let's pause here for a minute this is also related to the the mishmash theory i mentioned earlier that the prophet muhammad denied the divinity of jesus but also called jesus the logos and in john's gospel the logos is god in the beginning was the word the word was with god and and the word was god most historians would say that it is highly implausible that jesus believed himself to be the logos therefore the quran is also saying something implausible here about Jesus, this is the claim. So what's my response to this? Okay, when, when the Qur'an says that Jesus is a word from God, كلمة min Allah. okay? Who, who says this? It is the angel who announces this to Mary. So Jesus' title, a word from God, or word of God, is related to his birth. It has nothing to do with his supposed pre-eternality, okay? And this is significant because, again... The Quran here is not borrowing a middle platonic term or concept like the Gospel of John does, but rather the Quran is continuing the established Jewish miracle birth tradition. How so? Well, in Genesis eighteen fourteen, Sarah laughs and says, shall I bear a child and I am old? What did the angel say to her? Is anything too hard from the Lord? Okay, but in Hebrew it says, Hayit uh, palei me Adonai davar, literally, is any word too hard for the Lord. Davar means word. In Greek, this is translated as chrema, not lagas. What does Devar mean in the context of Genesis? It means an edict, a matter, an affair, or a decree. Is anything that God decrees? Is any affair that God wills too hard for him to do? This is the meaning of what the angel says to Sarah. Okay, so in the Quran, when the angel says to Mary, God gives you glad tidings of a word from him. In the Jewish context, the first century Jerusalem, Mary would have understood this as God decreeing some affair for her. Okay, in fact, Jisenius says that the the arabic equivalent in meaning to davar is amr when mary says to the angel that she's a virgin the the angel says whenever god decrees a matter an amr an affair a davar a khrema, he only says be and it is okay so jesus is that davar that khrema, that amr that kalima right so amr and kalima are basically in the context of jesus in the quran synonymous or in Surah Maryam, right? The angel says to Mary, "Wakana It is a matter decreed. In other words, a word decreed. So the Quran tells us how it's using the word kalima, okay? With respect to Jesus. Not in the Greek polytheistic Johannine sense, but in the proper monotheistic Jewish sense. So davar means something that God decreed. And this is... All over the tanakh even outside of the birth narrative tradition like in genesis 24:50, laban and uh, bethuel said about rebecca marrying isaac they say this is from the lord we have no say in the matter but that's a translation in the hebrew what does it say literally this, this word this matter this affair this decree is from god we can't do anything to stop it so i would uh, conclude that the Qur'an's epithet for Jesus, a word of God or a word from God, is not at all equivalent to the Johannine Logos, but rather the Tanakhi Davar translated Khreima in the Septuagint. What's interesting is that even Luke, when speaking of Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist in her old age, even Luke uses this Jewish language, right? In Luke one thirty-seven, Right? says for he says for no word from god for no word from god shall be devoid of power that's literally what the greek says right and so the quran confirms that indeed jesus is the word of god but not in the christian sense but rather in the sense that mary would have understood it that jesus was a decreed thing that he thrust upon mary Mary's uh, sorry Jesus's birth was a sign of God's greatness and power okay and next we have Jesus broadly confirmed the Torah but also made certain amendments ameliorations to it makes sense Jesus constantly enjoyed prayer and charity makes sense Jesus predicted the coming of a powerful figure to come after him makes sense the bar Enash, the son of man it's all over the synoptic gospels check out the podcast we did on the son of man Jesus celebrated a notable feast with his disciples. Makes sense. Jesus told the Israelites to fear God and follow him. Makes sense. Jesus preached um, the gospel, the Injil, uh, to the Israelites, which emphasized having intimate knowledge of God, leading to a strong love of God. Makes sense. Jesus taught the Israelites to be reflections of the divine qualities, to be lordly servants. Makes sense. Jesus was aided with the Holy Spirit. Okay, here. Pause here real quick. Christian polemicists claim that the Qur'an is, again, affirming a Trinitarian idea while also denying the divinity of Jesus. The Qur'an is confused again. But the truth is, the Qur'an is not confused. The critics are confused. If Yeshua HaNutri, if Jesus of Nazareth, peace be upon him, said in the first century that he was being aided by Ru'ach Kadosh, what did he mean? Did he mean the third person of a triune deity? Of course not. That's a total anachronism. The phrase ruach khodosh is mentioned three times in the Tanakh. Once in the Psalms and twice in Isaiah. So here's Psalm 51.11. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take away from me ruach Kotushaka, your Holy Spirit. So this is called a a bi-member segment in synonymic parallelism. This is very common in Hebrew lyrical poetry in the psalms is, is 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 Hebrew lyrical poetry in other words the second line is just a restatement of the first line do not cast me away from your presence meaning do not take away from me your holy spirit so the Ruach Kadosh is an expression that denotes the presence of God's power it denotes the presence of God's power by which he accomplishes his divine will So again, just as we saw with Jesus being a word from God, a devar mi Adonai, the Quran restores and reinstates the true meaning of the Hebrew phrase ruach kadosh. Continuing, Jesus made the Jewish establishment angry. Makes sense. Jesus was not crucified. Although there was some crucifixion event, those who made the claim that Jesus was crucified did so based on conjecture. This is plausible. There were no eyewitnesses. We talked about this last time, just mistaken identity. Jesus was claimed by his Jewish followers to have ascended into heaven. Makes sense, like Elijah or Enoch. This was the claim of his Jewish followers. And finally, shortly after Jesus' departure, two factions of Nazarenes emerged. One of them went astray. Makes sense. That's what happened. Okay. Continuing then, now let's look at the words of the New Testament, Jesus. Okay, so there's a lot of difference of opinion as to when the 39 books of the Tanakh were declared. An official closed canon, whether it happened before or after the Common Era. Uh, John Collins says that it happened at the end of the first century of the Common Era, okay? For our present purposes, it really doesn't matter. This, the seven main books of the Old Testament Apocrypha were, were never considered totally authentic uh, by Jewish authorities before or after Jesus. So these are First and Second Maccabees, uh, Judith, Tobit, Sirach, Baruch, and the Wisdom of Solomon. Um, and these are also called <coughs> the Jutero- Uh, Does this mean that these books have no value whatsoever or that they don't contain any truth? No, in fact, the New Testament Jesus confirms certain statements, analogies, and themes in some of these seven books. And this can't be denied in good faith. This can't be denied by an intellectually honest person. I mean, Catholics outright do not deny this. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church went so far as to declare these books to be absolutely canonical, right? The Old Testament canon of the Roman Catholic Church is 46 books. So the Roman Catholic Church disagrees with Judaism. In in Judaism, these books have value. They are, quote, instructional, but they're not canon. Uh, Generally, Protestants as well consider these books to have value and contain elements of truth, but they're not totally authentic. But then there are other Old Testament apocryphal texts, like like 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Estrus, or 3rd and 4th Maccabees, and so you'll find some of these books in the Greek Orthodox and Slavonic canons, right? Many, many books. The irony about these you know, anti-Muslim Christian polemicists who, in, who accused the Prophet Muhammad of forgery and plagiarism is that the New Testament Jesus engaged with the Old Testament Apocrypha in the same way that the Quran at times engage, engages with the New Testament Apocrypha. And I'll show you that. But let's look at some examples from the New Testament Jesus. Okay, so here's what the... Uh, uh, here's, here's the book of Matthew and the book of Sirach, right? So Matthew was written around you know, 80, 85 CE. Sirach was written around 180 BCE, something like that. So they're separated by almost 300 uh, years. So here's Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's Sirach 29, 10, and 11. Help the poor for the commandment's sake, and in their need do not send them away empty-handed. Lose your silver for the sake of a brother or a friend, and do not let it rust under a stone and be lost. Store up your treasure according to the commandments of the Most High, and it will profit you more than gold. So we have this common theme of not allowing rust to destroy our earthly treasure by getting rid of it. And in doing so, we store up treasures in heaven. In other words, we must give our wealth to the poor and less fortunate in order for it to benefit us. I think it's clear that the Matthian Jesus is alluding to these verses in Sirach as a way of making his point more vivid by using language that his initial audience is already familiar with. When we give charity in this world, that wealth that we lose, God will turn into treasure in the next world. The Methean Jesus is just restating these verses from Sirach, and Sirach is apocryphal, does this, mean that, uh, does this mean that what Jesus is saying is false? No. Jesus is simply confirming that specific teaching in Sirach. That teaching is true. It was likely popular during his day. Does this mean that Jesus believed every word of the book of Sirach? No, not necessarily. This was just an effective way of making his point. Um, example number two, John 6, 35 and 54. Jesus said to them, so this is a Johanan Jesus. Uh, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. Sirach 24:21. Those who eat of me will hunger no for more, for more, and those who drink of me will thirst for more. I think there's a clear interplay here. So the speaker in, in Sirach is the personified wisdom, Sophia Chokmah of God. When we consume wisdom, God's wisdom, the language is clearly metaphorical. That is to say, when we wholeheartedly dedicate ourselves totally to God's teachings, we will only find ourselves eager to learn more. So why the analogy of eating and drinking? Well, in the ancient world, people often uh, died because of something they ate or drank. When you eat or drink something and take it into your body, you're demonstrating total trust that what you're eating or drinking will not harm you. It demonstrates total trust. Now, the Johannine Jesus borrows this analogy because his audience knows it well. So now, the Johannan Jesus, as the Logos, claims to be that very wisdom of God. But now, by consuming his flesh and blood, he adds, you will never again be hungry or thirsty. So the Johannine Jesus revises this. You will never again be hungry or thirsty because you will have consumed the fullness of God's wisdom in the person, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, who is a divine being. In other words, the Johannan Jesus confirms this teaching from Sirach, but he takes it a step further. So like Matthew, he couches a Greek or pagan concept in Jewish language. Example number three, John ten twenty two. At the time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. First Maccabees, 459. Then Judas and his brothers, Judas Maccabees, uh, and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year at that season of dedica- uh, that season dedication, <coughs> the altar should be observed with joy, etc. So the feast of the dedication is called Hanukkah, right? And Hanukkah does not appear even once in any book of the canonical Tanakh. It only appears in the apocryphal book of First Maccabees. So John tells us that the Jews at the time of Jesus were celebrating an event that is not described in any canonical book of Scripture. Hanukkah commemorated the Maccabean revolt led by Judas Maccabees and his brothers, the dedication of the temple, you know, the the oil burning for eight days, etc. In John 7, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the day of the Feast of the Dedication, he was walking along Solomon's porch. It seems that John is telling us that the Johannine Jesus confirmed the Feast of the Dedication as being true and historical, that Jesus celebrated a feast That was only found in the Apocrypha. Example number four, Matthew 23, 37. And there's only five of these. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, Okay, and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Second estrus, one Uh, Chapter 1, 30 to 33, I gathered you as a hen, gathers her chicks under her wings, but now what shall shall I do to you? I will cast you out from my presence. I have sent you, my servants, the prophets, but you have taken them and killed them. Your house is desolate. So here we see a clear-cut correspondence between the Methean Jesus and the author of 2nd Estrus. Now neither Jews, Catholics, or Protestants consider 2nd Estrus canonical. Chapters 1 and 2 of 2nd Esdras is also called 5th <clears throat> Ezra, by the way. It's a little confusing. So here's the interesting dilemma for the Christians when it comes to 5th Ezra. Obviously, most Christian confessionals believe that 5th that Ezra was written by a Jewish author. <clears throat> Not Ezra, but a Jewish author before the Christian era. If that's true, then clearly the Methean Jesus is alluding to, paraphrasing, and quoting 5th Ezra, also known as 2nd Esdras, chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. So Jesus is quoting Apocrypha. The majority of historical scholars, however, (laughs) place the writing of 5th Ezra after the Christian period. Hmm. I believe that it was written by a Christian, a Pauline Christian, who tried to deceive his Jewish audience by pretending to be the ancient scribe Ezra of the 5th century BCE. I mean, talk about a truly ambitious forgery, right? So in this case, the Mathean Jesus is not quoting 5th Ezra, but the other way around. But why is this also problematic for the confessional Christian? I think because this vividly demonstrates how commonly and brazenly and successfully early Pauline Christians uh, would be able to create counterfeit writings in order to win people to their side. So not only were Gospels and Epistles forged in the name of Jesus' apostles, but Pauline Christians were even bold enough to forge Old Testament Apocryphal books, really quite amazing. Mm. Example number five, Matthew 27, 43. He trusted in God, let him deliver him from his enemies, for he said, I am the son of God. Wisdom, 2.18. If the righteous man is God's son, he will help him and he will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. So clearly, Matthew has the wisdom of Solomon in mind here. Now, Matthew may not have believed that the wisdom of Solomon was inspire scripture from beginning to end but that did not stop him from saying that the author successfully predicted something that supposedly happened to Jesus. It's also plausible that Matthew did believe that the wisdom of Solomon was inspired by God. Catholics would agree with Matthew, Protestants would not. Okay, so now I think we're ready to look at the Quran's engagement with the Christian Apocrypha, okay? Uh, As I mentioned, uh, we'll look at four writings, the Proto-Gospel of James, the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, And the Syriac Infancy Gospel, also known as the the Arabic Infancy Gospel. Does it make sense that the Prophet copied these sources? Okay, so let's start with the Proto-Gospel of James. Um, The Proto-Gospel of James was most likely written uh, in the first half of the second century, not long after the composition of the Gospel of John and the Book of Acts. The author attempts to harmonize uh, elements found in both Matthew uh, and Luke, despite its Attribution to James, the gospel was definitely not written by James So we have nothing authentic from the real James the just sadiq. Uh, the so-called proto-gospel of James is pseudepigraphal Now, how does the Qur'an engage with the proto-gospel of James? Is there direct literary dependence or is something else happening? So I'll come back to this in a minute, inshallah But here's a quote from, I like this quote from New Advent Catholic Encyclopedia And this is about the Old Testament pseudepigrapha Old Testament pseudepigrapha, is what they say. It should be borne in mind, however, that the apocryphal character of these writings, that is to say, their rejection from the canon and their ungenuineness do not imply that no heed whatever should be taken of some of their assertions side by side, indeed, with unwarranted and legendary facts. So I'll pause here. Now, that's interesting. Today, there are Christians today, uh, Christian apologists today, like like Mike Lacona, and I mentioned this last time, who now admit that there are legends in the canonical gospel accounts like the zombie apocalypse of Matthew. Let's keep reading. Uh, They continue to say, they contain some historical data borrowed from reliable traditions or documents. Okay? So the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, these books contain some historical data borrowed from reliable traditions or documents and difficult though it is to distinguish in them the wheat from the tares, it would be unwise and uncritical indiscriminately to reject the whole, end quote. So certainly we can approach the New Testament pseudepigrapha In the same way, there is wheat among the tares in the New Testament pseudepigrapha. Interestingly, most Christians in the world celebrate a feast every November called the Feast of the Entrance into the Temple of Our Most Holy Lady, also called the Presentation of Mary in the Temple. This is a Catholic and Eastern Orthodox feast every November. The only text that this feast is based upon is this text, the Proto-Gospel of James. According to Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians, the tradition of Mary serving in the temple from age three to 12 is a firmly established tradition with ancient roots. In other words, the majority of Christians affirm that this gospel contains truth. Okay. So here are some uh, agreed upon similarities between the Quran and the proto gospel of James. Uh, so the mother of Mary specially dedicates her child to God, irrespective of the child's sex as a child mary resided in the temple and was fed by angels and rods were cast in order to determine her caretaker okay so historically uh we basically have two options option number one is at some point the prophet muhammad heard this text somehow the proto gospel of james in an arabic translation now remember the prophet was unlettered uh, okay and even if he could read or write you know, you know the chances that he had a nice arabic translation of the proto-gospel of james sitting on his bookshelf in his secret library in medina is virtually zero uh, unlike matthew and luke who did have greek copies of mark and q sitting on their desks as it were when they wrote their gospels so the, so the prophet must have heard this text in an arabic translation then he must have written or dictated what he remembered in the quran while also adapting the text to fit in with his own theology So this explains the similarities and differences. So this option assumes that the prophet was directly dependent upon the proto-gospel of James. There was direct literary dependence. Option number two, various traditions about Mary and Jesus were transmitted orally since the first century by various messianic Jews, uh, Christians, in quotes. Over time, these traditions were modified and expanded by various Christian communities, including the community which authored the proto-gospel of James in the second century. The versions of these traditions that were popular in the Arabian Peninsula made their way into the text of the Quran. In Jerusalem, by the way, is only about 700 miles away from Medina. Uh, it's 2,500 miles away from Rome, where Mark most likely wrote his gospel. Therefore, the Quran is not directly dependent upon the proto gospel of James, but drew its narratives from a shared oral tradition that was based upon an ancient Near Eastern messianic kerugma or proclamation. So these are the two options historically i think okay however i would argue that these options fail to take into consideration the method or the logic of the quran's unique uh, storytelling or retelling miracles aside the quran seems to avoid the historical implausibilities of the christian narratives found in the proto-gospel of james just as it did with the exodus flood and Joseph narratives found in Genesis. For example, the Proto-Gospel of James mentions both the Lucan census under Augustus, as well as the mathean Herodian slaughter of the innocents. Both of these events are highly implausible historically. And, and this is clearly a contradiction between Matthew and Luke, right? Harmonization here is just not very convincing. There is no mention of these events uh, in the Quran. The Quran consistently avoids the historical pitfalls of the Christian narratives. What about Mary living in uh, uh, or around the temple? Is it historically plausible that girls were permitted to live in the temple area? The answer is yes. Young girls were sometimes dedicated by their parents for temple service. And the priest, the Kohanim, would ask these young girls, these young unmarried girls, to weave the curtains of the temple. The Proto-Gospel of James tells us that Mary was one of these virgin weavers. This was how she would specially serve God. She was a servant of the temple. There may be a reference to these girls in 2nd Maccabees 319, right? When a Greek minister named uh, Heliodorus tried to enter the temple, it says virgins who were kept indoors ran together to the gates. Uh, These may have been the young girls who were dedicated by their parents to serve uh, the temple. The Quran implies this about Mary as well. The Quran says that Mary set up a hijab, a barrier or curtain in the East, presumably in the Eastern part of the temple, in order to guard her privacy. So hijab here in the Quran does not mean head covering, uh, but rather like a barrier or curtain. In this specific context, the head covering for women is mentioned uh, elsewhere in the Quran. Presumably the curtain that Mary was working on, she would also sort of use as a hijab or barrier when she wanted privacy. Uh, The Quran tells us explicitly that a priest named Zachariah was her caretaker during this time. The Proto Gospel of James implies that it was Zachariah as well, from age three to 12. <clears throat> the Proto Gospel of James continues. It says, When Mary turned 12, uh, she needed to leave the temple because she could start her cycle at any time and thus defile the sanctuary, the mihrab. So Zechariah uh, gathered a group of widowers and was told by an angel, according to the Proto Gospel of James, that they should cast rods and that Mary uh, would become the wife of the one to whom the Lord God would give a sign, and that man was Joseph. So here is the historical question. Would the priests engage in something like this? Right. That's, that's the question. Not did an angel actually order this. The latter cannot be known through modern historiography, and so historians, they don't touch it. They don't touch the supernatural. They're naturalists. The historical question is, is it plausible that the priest cast lots? And the answer is yes. In fact, casting lots was a common method for determining the will of god the assignment of temple duties to be performed by priestly families was determined by lot this is mentioned several times in first chronicles and in leviticus in fact according to the book of acts the apostles appointed two men to take the place of judas justice and matthias so acts 126 it says they cast lots and the lot fell to matthias so he was added to the 11 apostles uh, furthermore, Luke says in 1.9 about Zacharias, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. So the priest casting lots to determine the guardianship of Mary uh, is very plausible. Now, when the angel gave Mary the news of her son, the proto-gospel of James basically quotes the response of the angel in Luke, the power of God will overshadow you therefore the one born shall be called the son of the highest so again we have this greek idea of a half divine half mortal demigod historically this is not what the first christians who told this story likely would have said okay the first christians quote-unquote christians who were palestinian jews the jamesonian nazarenes the Nutzrim under yaakov probably did not tell the story like that more plausibly they said something like what the Qur'an says. Even so, God creates whatever he wills. Whenever, de- whenever he decrees a matter, he only says to it, be and it is. Or in Surah Maryam, Thus, it, it will be, your Lord says, it is easy for me. This is a much more Jewish response and thus more contextually coherent. Again, uh, like when Sarah was told of the birth of Isaac, in Genesis 18, the angel said, Is anything, any devar, any affair too hard for the Lord? In other words, Hua it is easy for me. So, did the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, plagiarize the Proto Gospel of James? No, the Quran's engagement with the Christian traditions recorded in the text of the Proto Gospel of James is similar to its engagement with the traditions found in the canonical Gospels. <clears throat> it is confirming, revising, and rejecting. let's move to the proto gospel, sorry, the gospel of pseudo Matthew. So here's a passage from chapter 20 of pseudo Matthew. I'll read this quickly. And it came to pass on the third day of their journey when they were walking, that the blessed Mary was fatigued by the excessive heat of the sun in the desert and seeing a palm tree. She said to Joseph, let me rest under, let me rest a little under the shade of this tree. Therefore, Joseph made haste and and led her to the palm and made her come down from her beast. And as the blessed Mary was sitting there, she looked up to to the foliage of the palm and saw it full of fruit and said to Joseph, I wish it were possible to get some of the fruit of this palm. Then the child Jesus with a joyful countenance, reposing in the bosom of his mother said to the palm, "O tree, bend your branches and refresh my mother with your fruit. And immediately at these words, the palm bent its top down to the very blessed feet of the blessed Mary, to the very feet of blessed Mary. And they gathered from it fruit with which they were all refreshed. Then Jesus said to it, Raise yourself, O palm tree, and be strong, and be, and be the companion of my trees, which are in the paradise of my Father. And open from your roots a vein of water, which has been hid in the earth, and let the waters flow, so that we may be satisfied from you. And it rose up immediately, and its root there began to come forth a spring. Uh, and at its root, there began to come forth a spring of water exceedingly clear and cool and sparkling. So we have Mary sitting under a palm tree eating from its fruit and hearing the voice of Jesus, who spoke to her as a very young child. She then refreshed herself with the waters of a spring that came up from the earth. Okay, now in Surah 19 of the Quran, we are told that the pains of childbirth drove Mary through the trunk of a palm tree. She hears a voice that tells her not to grieve and to shake the trunk of the tree for dates to fall and to drink from a spring beneath her. The speaker is not identified. But some mufassirin some exegetes, maintain that it is the newborn Jesus who is speaking to her. Others say it's an angel. So there are similarities, but also differences. So in Pseudo-Matthew, uh, Jesus was already born. It wasn't the pains of childbirth that drove Mary under the tree, but rather fatigue from the sun's heat. So Jesus was already born in Pseudo-Matthew. Joseph is not mentioned anywhere in the Quranic narrative. In Pseudo-Matthew, the young Jesus orders the tree to bend its branches while in the Quran, Jesus, if it is Jesus, told Mary to shake the trunk and let the dates fall. And then, of course, Jesus refers to God as his father in pseudo-Matthew, which we never get in the Quran. Of course, by father here, the author intends an orthodox Christian understanding of the term. Now, Bart Ehrman and Zlatko Plesi co-wrote a book called The Apocryphal Gospels, Okay, And in this book, they say that the earliest surviving of pseudo-Matthew are dated to the early 9th century. Some say 11th century. Hmm. When was Surah 19 of the Quran composed? No later than 622 CE. It's a Meccan Surah, according to everybody. And this is indisputable. The Birmingham manuscript contains Surah 19. Okay. So historians date the original composition of Pseudo Matthew to, to either the eighth or ninth centuries. But according to some, it could have been written early, even as early as the mid seventh century at the earliest. So around 650 CE, terminus post-quem. But this is just conjecture. So, I mean, it seems to me that there there are some historians who really want this to be the source of the Quran. Okay, most likely, pseudo-Matthew is an 8th century document. But even if we humor 650 CE, okay, that's 30 years after the story shows up in the Quran. And where was Islam in 650 CE? Remember the famous Uthmanic Codex Committee, was held between 645 and 650 in Medina. By 650, all of Arabia, Yemen, and the areas that would become Iran, Iraq, Syria, Palestine, and parts of Egypt were Muslim. Millions of Christians from all over these places were hearing the Quran for the first time. So it seems to me that pseudo-Matthew is a response to and critical rewriting of the Quranic narrative rather than the other way around. It seems to me, and it's very plausible, that the author of pseudo-Matthew wants to convey Muslims through the Quran's method of storytelling, that is through confirmation, correction, and rejection. In other words, Pseudo-Matthew is a Christian counter-narrative to the Quran. The author of Pseudo-Matthew was trying to beat the Quran at its own game, okay? So here again, the Quran is not directly dependent on Pseudo-Matthew. So where did the Quran get this information from? Well, historically, one option is the Prophet made it up which does not fit his personality at all. The prophet was known by the Arabs before his claim of revelation as being the most truthful and trustworthy of all men. They called them a sadiq al-amin. The Quran makes appeals to the prophet's reputation among his people, that he was not a poet, he wasn't a soothsayer or insane or a liar. Option number two, the prophet heard certain oral traditions about Mary and Jesus, kind of broadly speaking, Mary sitting under a tree, Jesus, yeah talking to her, Mary eating food and drinking from a spring and incorporated them into the Quran. Either way, he was not directly dependent upon Pseudo-Matthew. Personally, I think the prophet received these narrations from an angel. Uh, this is a non-historical claim according to the modern secular naturalistic paradigm, but I'm fine with that. I'm not a strict naturalist. I have confidence and trust in the claims of the prophet because I have good reasons to have confidence and trust in him. You know, I, I believe in him for good reasons. Uh, so so let me give you another analogy. I'll use the, I'll use the Michael Jordan analogy again. So imagine somebody said, um, you you know, I always thought that, um, Wilt Wilt Chamberlain was the greatest player of all time. But when I saw what Jordan did in his career, uh, he made a believer out of me. He made a believer out of me. So what is this person saying? Is he saying that he changed his mind and now believes something for no reason because he uses the word belief. No, he has reasons for his belief, and he can articulate them, right? So we have reasons why we trust the Prophet, reasons for our belief. But belief doesn't mean believing without reason. There are other reasons why we believe, okay? Again, if, if if the Quran happens to say something that seems to have no precedent, the atheist and many Christian polemicists, they say, oh, Muhammad just made that up. But if the Quran confirms a story or revises a tradition that was known before the Prophet, they say Muhammad was a plagiarist right? See, they're being intellectually dishonest. But here's the bottom line. Does it stand to reason? Does it make sense that the prophet plagiarized this apocryphal gospel? No, this is not what the evidence suggests at all. Here's another example. This is also from Pseudo-Matthew. This is in chapter 9 of Pseudo-Matthew. This is what it says. While she was working on the purple with her fingers, so this is Mary working in the temple, weaving the curtain with, with the color purple, which is the color worn by kings. While she was working on the purple with her fingers, there entered a young man of ineffable beauty. And when Mary saw him, she exceedingly feared and trembled. And then the man who was really an angel says, fear not, he shall bring forth a king who fills not only the earth, but the heaven, and who reigns from generation to generation. Okay, So here again, the author of pseudo-Matthew constructed a Christian counter narrative to the Quranic story. So the Quran says, and remember in the scripture, Mary, when she secluded herself from her people in an eastern location, so presumably in the temple, Screening herself from them, then we sent to her our angel, appearing before her as a man, perfectly formed, She appealed, I truly seek refuge in the most compassionate from you. So leave me alone if you are God fearing. (laughs) He responded, I'm only the messenger from your Lord sent to bless you with a pure (laughs) son. She said, How can I have a son when no man has ever touched me, nor uh, nor am I unchaste? (laughs) He said, "Thus said your Lord: It is easy for me, and we will make him a sign for humanity, and a mercy from us. It has been a, and it has been a matter already decreed, a word, a davar, a خَرِيمَة, a, a kalima. So the author, pseudo Matthew, right, did not like the Quran's low Christology here. Jesus is pure, a sign for humanity. A mercy that's it that's not enough no he is a king but not just any king a king who rules the heaven and earth for all time in other words he's god so here i'll repeat i'll somewhat repeat what i said about the proto gospel of james historically this is not what the first christians likely would have said about jesus the first christians were palestinian jews the jamesonian nazarenes the nutrim most probably did not believe that jesus was god more plausibly they said something like what the quran says that Jesus was pure, a sign for humanity, a manifestation of God's mercy. The Quran's Christology here is much more contextually coherent. The last thing I'll say about pseudo-Matthew, and just as we saw with the proto-Gospel of James, miracles aside, uh, the Quran seems to avoid the historical implausibilities of the Christian narratives found specifically in pseudo-Matthew. Pseudo-Matthew mentions the Lucan census in chapter 13. Pseudo-Matthew says that there was was, quote An edict of Caesar Augustus that all the world was to be enrolled. Such an edict most likely did not happen. There's no mention of this in the Quran. Here's another thing the, the story in chapter 20 of Pseudo Matthew of Mary resting under the palm tree, according to Pseudo Matthew. This took place while Mary and Jesus were traveling in the desert to Egypt. Why? Why were they going to Egypt? Well, according to Pseudo Matthew, chapter 17, it was because Herod spoke to the Magi who somehow followed a star into Judea. And Herod became angry, so he ordered all of the boys of Bethlehem slaughtered who were two years old or younger. So the former, Christians can argue, was a miracle how the Magi followed a star. Okay, fine, it's a miracle, so it's non-historical. But the the latter event is a naturalistic historical claim, and there's no evidence of this happening. Maybe it happened, but historically it's highly unlikely. Interestingly, in the Quran, Mary sits under the palm tree to give birth. Right? Everyone other than a few mythicists agree that Jesus was born in Palestine. But very few historians maintain that Jesus traveled to Egypt because Herod was committing genocide against male infants and toddlers in Bethlehem. So here's what I think happened. The author of Pseudo-Matthew, wanting to theologically rewrite the Qur'anic story, uh, could not agree with the Qur'an, however, that Jesus was born under a palm tree. Why? Because Matthew and Luke said that he was born in a manger and in a cave, respectively. He doesn't want to contradict Matthew and Luke. So Pseudo-Matthew moves the story to the desert while Mary and an infant Jesus were traveling to Egypt. But unfortunately for Pseudo-Matthew, that entire context is highly implausible. Also, Jesus is called the divine son of God and savior of the world by Pseudo-Matthew. Two titles of Jesus that Jesus himself, a rabbi and Torah observant Jew, would likely have repudiated in the strongest of terms. In other words, these titles don't make sense historically. So historians tell us that Jesus of Nazareth most likely claimed to be a servant of God and a prophet. The Quran quotes Jesus in the Abdullah: "I am the servant of God. He made, He gave me scripture and made me a prophet." Now let's move to the infancy gospel of Thomas. Mm. Here we have a passage from the infancy gospel of Thomas. This is in chapter two, verses one to four. When the child Jesus was five years old. He then made some soft mud and fashioned 12 sparrows. It was the Sabbath when he did this. <coughs> a certain Jew saw what Jesus had done while playing on the Sabbath, he left right away and reported to his father Joseph. When Joseph came to the place and saw what had happened, he cried out to him. Uh, why are you doing what is forbidden on the Sabbath? But Jesus clapped his hands and cried to the sparrows, Be gone! And the sparrows took flight and went off chirping. So here's the Quran. أَنِّي uh, I have come to you with a sign from your Lord. I make for you a bird from clay. Breathe into it, and it become a real bird by God's leave. In the Quran, no age of Jesus is given, and there is nothing about the Sabbath or Joseph. So the so the claim here is that the prophet lifted the story from the infancy gospel of Thomas. So just some quick background: um, the infancy gospel of Thomas was one of the earliest so-called infancy gospels. It was written in the first half of the second century, not long after the composition of the Gospel of John and the Book of Acts. Despite its attribution to Thomas the Israelite, the gospel was definitely not written by Thomas. The gospel is pseudepigraphal. Now, the Christian polemicist's claim is not only uh, did the prophet plagiarize the story of sparrows Mm -hmm. from the gospel, the prophet didn't realize that this gospel was written as fiction, that this gospel was intended for entertainment purposes only. It's just satire, right? Why do these polemicists say this? Well, because when we read, when we keep reading the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, Jesus as a youth goes around killing children and his adult teachers, but also resurrects them in some cases. So many Christians conclude that the author intended this gospel to be basically fan fiction, a humorous account of the lost years of Jesus. God as a child and a made-up story from this gospel ended up in the Quran. So the first Uh, problem for the Christian is their assumption that the infancy gospel of Thomas, uh, was meant to be satire. Now clearly the author of the infancy gospel of Thomas, we'll just call him pseudo Thomas pseudo Thomas believes that Jesus is God. So this is clear. The gospel ends by saying to him, Jesus be the glory forever and ever. I don't suspect that the author of this gospel is making fun of his God. when the latter was a child. This is not satire. According to Dr. Chris Ferlingos, who's a scholar of of ancient uh, Christianity, uh, Pseudo-Thomas is actually making a point that Jesus, even as a child, possesses knowledge that no one can even begin to comprehend. As a divine being, Jesus's actions are, in reality, beyond our understandings. Jesus had esoteric knowledge that even his teachers lack. This is a theme that's also found in the Gospel of John. This is not a new idea. Nicodemus, an an old Pharisee, in John 3, is censured by a comparatively young Jesus for being a teacher in Israel and yet not understanding what it means to be born of the Spirit. Also in John, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In the infancy gospel of Thomas, as God, Jesus takes life and gives it back. He is the resurrection and the life. This is the point that Pseudo-Thomas is making. Pseudo-Thomas refers to the events in his gospel as, quote, the magnificent childhood activities of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't some fan fiction comic book where the author and his audience are laughing at their God. A second major problem for the Christian is their assumption that all of its contents, all of the stories of the infancy gospel of Thomas, were intended to be a fictional by its author. Now, it's true that according to the genre of Greco-Roman biographies and novels, the author would invent stories as well as the dialogue. And this also happens in the four canonical Gospels and the Book of Acts. I mean, we talked about that in the last, the, the last podcast when we debunked the Gospel Passion narratives. Uh, so there is fiction in the Institute Gospel of Thomas. There's also fiction in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Uh, however, we also know that there is some historical truth in these Gospels in the sense that some of the purported sayings or actions of Jesus in the Gospels likely go back to him and his immediate uh, disciples. Now, at the end of the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, chapter 19, Pseudo-Thomas tells us uh, a story about Jesus. He says that when Jesus was 12 years old, he and his parents made a trip to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. When they were returning to Galilee, his parents thought that Jesus was in the caravan, but he was actually sitting in the temple questioning the elders and teachers, as well as explaining the finer points of the law. When Mary eventually finds him, Jesus says, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Now, I have a question for the Christian polemicists. Is this story fiction? Of course, they will say, no, 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 why? Because that story is in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so Christian polemicists must admit that not all of the contents of the infancy Gospel of Thomas were intended to be fictional by its author. Because if so, then they are admitting that there is fiction in the Gospel of Luke. My position, is that there? That it is, is that all of these gospels contain truth and fiction? In other words, authentic reports and fabricated reports. It's a huge corpus of hadith that must be examined. Uh, a Christian apologist may say here, but but uh, pseudo Thomas believed Jesus was God, and the Quran relates a very similar miracle. Therefore, the Quran teaches that Jesus is God. Right? Again, the double standard problem. I can do the very same thing. Uh, Jude quoted first Enoch. In first Enoch, Enoch is called the son of man. Therefore, Jude taught that Enoch and not Jesus was a son of man. You see how this works. Now, the infancy gospel of Thomas was very popular okay, among ancient Christians. It influenced a lot of Christian art and poetry. I- Irenaeus knew of it and denounced it. I mean, he felt compelled to explicitly denounce it. Uh, for his own reasons, precisely because it was so popular among Christians. This story of Jesus fashioning clay into birds and giving them life is the first miracle mentioned by Pseudo-Thomas. This is how he starts his gospel. This miracle also shows up in Pseudo-Matthew, chapter 27, and the Arabic gospel of the infancy of the Savior, also known as the Syriac infancy gospel, chapter 36. Now, these latter two were likely influenced by the Quran. I'll talk about the, the Arabic infancy gospel next. But regardless, my point is that this particular story about Jesus was very popular, and many, many Christians, both before and after Islam, mentioned a version of it and had no issues with it. This story also shows up in the Toledath the Yeshu, right, the book of the history of Jesus, the first polemical Jewish response to Jesus of Nazareth. So this particular story of Jesus is found in, in Christian, Jewish, and Muslim sources. Yet all three groups use this story to draw vastly different conclusions about who Jesus was. It's quite interesting. It's very fascinating. In Christian circles, it was used to demonstrate that Jesus was God. In Muslim circles, to demonstrate that Jesus was a prophet. He performs the miracle, according to the Quran, by God's permission. And in Jewish circles, to demonstrate that Jesus was a sorcerer and a false prophet. Same story. So this brings us to the question how does the Quran engage with the Gospel of Thomas? So same question as before, is there direct literary dependence or is something else happening? So historically, again, uh, we basically have two options. We saw these two options earlier when we looked at the Proto-Gospel of James. Option number one, at some point, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, heard this text somehow, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, in an Arabic translation. But again, remember the Prophet wasn't lettered, and even if he could read or write, the chances that he had a nice Arabic translation of the Infancy Gospel of Thomas sitting on his bookshelf in his secret library in Mecca or Medina is virtually zero. Unlike, again, Matthew and Luke, who did have Greek copies of Mark and Q. Uh, So the prophet must have heard this text somehow in an Arabic translation. Then he wrote or dictated what he remembered in the Quran, while also adapting the text to fit in with his own theology. So this explains the similarities and differences. This option assumes that the prophet was directly dependent upon the gospel of Thomas, were, uh, um, so in other words, there was direct literary dependence. Option number two, various traditions about Jesus as a youth were transmitted orally since the first century by various messianic Jews, quote unquote, Christians. Over time, these traditions were modified and expanded by various Christian communities, including the community which authored the infancy gospel of Thomas in the second century. The versions of these traditions that were popular in the Arabian Peninsula made their way into the text of the Quran. Therefore, the Qur'an is not directly dependent upon the infancy gospel of Thomas, but drew its narratives from a shared oral tradition that was based upon an ancient Near Eastern messianic kirugma or proclamation. So these are the two options historically. Now again, strictly from a standpoint of secular history, did Jesus actually breathe on clay birds and bring them to life? Well, the answer is no comment because it's a miracle. It's non-historical. Secular historians, they don't touch it. The relevant historical question is, Is it plausible that this story goes back to Jesus himself? Is it plausible that a memory of Jesus breathing life into clay had its origin in Jesus himself and that this story was transmitted by his disciples until it reached the ears of some Pauline Christians, like Pseudo-Thomas, who wrote it down? Well, given the story's popularity in antiquity, yes, it is plausible. Is it plausible that the Jamesonian Christians recorded the story in their own writings? Of course, but alas don't have any authentic writings from from first century jamesonian christians now if this story goes back to jesus himself what is more likely that jesus claimed to have performed this miracle because he wanted to demonstrate that he was god or that he was a prophet and performed the miracle by god's permission what makes the most sense in what what makes the most sense in jesus's first century jewish context obviously the latter even in Matthew uh, chapter 9, after Jesus he- heals a, a paralytic, uh, Matthew says that when the crowd saw this, they were filled with fear and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus was a man given authority by God. <inaudible> As the Quran says, God gave me the scripture and made me a prophet. Now the Toladath Yeshu was likely written in the late antique but its stories about Jesus probably circulated for centuries. So much of the Toldoth Yeshu was written in direct response to the New Testament Gospels. This is obviously true. The Toldoth Yeshu contains clear counter-narratives to the New Testament accounts about Jesus. But as I said, the Toldoth Yeshu, curiously enough, also contains this story uh, of Jesus and the clay birds. Now, certainly the Jews who rejected Jesus were talking about Jesus since the time of Jesus. This is evident. They must have been responding to the claims of Jesus and his immediate disciples. It seems to me that one could make the case that this particular story of uh, Jesus and the clay birds uh, was circulating among not only Jamesonian and Pauline Christians, but also among non-Christian Jews, even as early as the first century. In other words, this story was also preserved in some form among the memories of non-Christian Jews, like the rabbis, until it was finally recorded in the Torah Yeshu. So then the Quran mentions it to make a point to both communities. Jesus did, in fact, perform this miracle, but not because he was God and not because he was a sorcerer. He was neither God nor a fraud, as they say. Let's move to the Arabic gospel of the infancy of the Savior, also known as the Syriac infancy gospel. This is the last one we're going to look at, so we're very close to being done here just a few more minutes. so here is a quote from the Arabic gospel, which is called the Arabic gospel, verse 2. Uh, when he, Jesus, was lying in his cradle, he said to his mother, he said to Mary, his mother, I am Jesus, the son of God, the Logos, through whom hast thou uh, brought forth, as the angel Gabriel announced to thee, and my father has sent me for the salvation of the world. Okay, so the Quran says, فَأَشَارَتْ إِلَيْهِ قَالُوا كَيْفَ نُكَلِّمُ مَن Mahdi So she pointed, Mary pointed to Jesus. They said, Her family said, How can we speak to a child in the cradle? Jesus said, I am the servant of God. He has given me the scripture and made me a prophet. And He made me blessed wheresoever I am. You know, Paul says Jesus became a curse. He's Mal'un. The Quran says the opposite that Jesus is Mubarak. He's blessed. And He commanded me to prayer and charity as long as i live and he commanded me to be kind to my mother and not to be arrogant or defiant so peace be upon me the day that i was born the day that i die and the day that i am raised up to life and of course jesus will be resurrected on the day of judgment such was jesus the son of mary there's a statement of truth about which they are disputing. It is not for God to take a son. Glory be to Him. Whenever He decrees a matter, He only says it would be. It is. And Jesus said, "God is my Lord and your Lord. So worship Him. This is the straight path." Surah Mani'am, verses 29 to 36. So the big similarity, and this is the last slide, the big similarity here is Jesus speaking as an infant. Now, there is no manuscript of this gospel, the Arabic gospel of the infancy, that predates the 13th century. Hmm. And the earliest mention of it is in the 9th century. Hmm. When was Surah Maryam of the Quran composed? No later than 622. It's a Meccan surah according to everyone. Again, it's indisputable. The Birmingham manuscript contains Surah Maryam. There's no mention of the Arabic gospel before the ninth century, yet the Arabic gospel was the source of the Quran? What? Did did the prophet, peace be upon him, somehow plagiarize something that most likely was written 200 years after his death? How did he do that? Okay, so this is similar to Surah Matthew. Uh, Millions of Christians from all over the Middle East, what what would later be called the Middle East, millions of Christians were hearing the Quran for the first time, and the Quran was making quite the splash. So it seems to me that the... uh, Arabic gospel was a response to and critical rewriting of the Qur'anic narrative rather than the other way around It seems to me that the author of the Arabic gospel wanted to convert Muslims through the Qur'an's method of storytelling That is through confirmation, correction, and rejection In other words, the Arabic gospel is a Christian counter-narrative to the Qur'an The author of the Arabic gospel was trying to beat the Qur'an at its own game Mm. Here again, the Qur'an is not directly dependent upon the Arabic gospel So, where did the Qur'an get this information from, that Jesus spoke as an infant? Historically, one option is, again, the Prophet made it up, which again does not fit his personality at all. Or option number two, the Prophet heard certain oral traditions about Jesus, broadly speaking, that he spoke as an infant and identified himself somehow, and the Prophet incorporated this tradition into the Qur'an. Either way, he was not directly dependent upon the Arabic gospel. And again, personally, I think the Prophet received these narratives. Uh, directly from an angel, and I have good reasons for trusting the prophet's claim. Here's the bottom line. Does it stand to reason, does it make sense that the prophet plagiarized this apocryphal gospel? No, this is not what the evidence suggests at all. And that is the end of the presentation. Oh, I do want to make one book recommendation. Uh, hmm. It's called The Apocryphal Gospels. It's by Ehrman and Plesi, P-L-E-S-E, The Apocryphal Gospels. A, a, a fantastic Book, yeah, they present about 40 ancient gospels that do not appear in the New Testament. It's really important for us as Muslims to have a broader understanding of the Christian tradition and Christian history because the Quran has something to say about that tradition and history.
1: Yeah, and my uh, my recommendation is this one: uh, Sydney H. Griffith, an American professor, specialist in the area. Yeah. The Bible in Arabic, uh, the scriptures of the people of the book in the language of Islam. Now there is uh, substantial work in here, of covering pretty much what you, you have actually, the way the, the Qur'an critically engages the biblical tradition. It's not simply affirming it, it, it has it, it retells the story according to its own prophetology, as he calls it, Sidney Griffiths. So uh, if you want a, an academic, uh, non-Muslim uh, analysis of many of the themes that Dr. Ali Atai has covered, um, in a broad agreement, I would think of what Dr. Atai said, I would recommend uh, this book by Professor Sidney H. Griffiths. He's a leading uh, specialist in the field, highly regarded by other academic colleagues from Harvard and Yale and so on. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Aliatai, for a magisterial, as always, a magisterial survey of the subject that you have uh, chosen to present. Um, there's so much, I can begin to comment on what you have said. There's so much co- uh, content there, uh, which will be of inestimable value, I'm sure, for many, many people, Muslim and non-Muslim, inshallah, who can benefit from your analysis. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me again. It's good to see you again. Until next time. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At US Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and community safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join US Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov/careers.